Do you desire to come to the climax of your day with fashionable food and delicious drinks? Ever wonder what transitioning from afternoon to night where you are personally serenaded by a band of hot young studs would be like? Are you curious about Italian food but want to stay away from California's bastardized, somehow both soupy and chewy version of pizza? Well, do I have just the place for you where you can also say I do and stay for your honeymoon too? Let me present to you the Cucumber Lounge, located in Eureka on the shoulder of the 101. We here at the Cucumber Lounge would achieve such pleasure if you would allow our tanned and beautiful waitstaff and expert cooks to erect for you a sumptuous meal replete with non-pickled delectables and nightly music from our house band. Stop by today and use the code MARON for a 50% discount on our new edible glass. Look out for our towering neon road sign, notorious all over the Vineland area. It's a big old revolving cucumber. We look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts here. My name is Cody. My name is Luke. I'm Will. Today we are going to be jumping into the next book that we've decided to discuss now that we've completed Mason and Dixon, and that one is going to be Vineland. Unlike last time, we are not going to be following the subreddit uh, guide that they took on their their journey through this book exactly they did it one chapter at a time uh, for the for the sake of brevity because these chapters are going to be significantly shorter in general than the ones in mason and dixon uh, we're going to be doing for the most part two chapters each week with the exception of um chapter nine and chapter 12, which happen to be longer chapters, so those will get their own episodes. And with that being said, um, I'd really just like to open up the podcast with kind of our general thoughts about the book itself. This book kind of occupies a strange position in the Pinchon canon in that it is it is oftentimes sort of denigrated or put <laughs> into... Yeah, I guess I am being nice. Denigrated or, or just like generally frowned upon as either skippable or like if you're going to read it, you're probably just going to read it because you want to read everything Pinchon wrote. Um, Pinchon light is is uh, usually the, the terminology that I have seen added to this most frequently by people um, in, in the, the modern culture of like reviewing books on Goodreads or, or modern readers in, in a lot of instances. Um, for my money, I think that's, uh, completely undeserved criticism. I think that any book published by any author after something like Gravity's Rainbow, which this book was, would likely have received a similar reception just because of what Gravity's Rainbow was and the significant time it took to to go from Gravity's Rainbow to the publishing of Vineland. Just to give like a little bit of backstory for you all on the book itself, this came off of the heels of a extended hiatus that thomas pinchon was on he most likely was writing mason and dixon against the day and vineland at the same time and so a a 
chunk of the reasoning behind why it took so long was the fact that he was working on two significantly heftier novels. But Vineland is a novel published in 1990. It is part of Thomas Pynchon's uh, California trilogy, as it is sort of represented. And as previously mentioned, it comes off of the heels of his most well-known work, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, of course, which was published in 1973. So there's a significant gap between that. And and that is my belief as to why it has the reputation it has. Um, my own personal experience with the book, I read it. When I was reading through the California trilogy, I started with Inherent Vice, as I've mentioned on my first episode with the show. That was the book that really got me into Pinchon and, and was where I started. And then I did it out of order. I read Crying of Lot 49 after that and then really wanted something that hopefully had like a similar stylistic vein to Inherent Vice. So then I read Vineland. Um, and I love it. I think it it is genuinely an underrated book in his canon. I think that there's a lot to discuss. I think that what we're all hoping for in doing this show is that we can kind of provide a different perspective on the book and, and hopefully invite people to reconsider what their, their previously um, held beliefs or opinions on the book might have been. So that that's that's my thoughts on the book and just a bit of backstory. What is your guys's history with this book your your thoughts on it what do you guys think i mean for me i i i'm totally on on the uh on board with the idea that this is an under un, unfairly underappreciated book of his um mm-hmm. and i think you summarized almost exactly why you know the the gap in time between gravity's rainbow and this um the fact that it's it's not more gravity's rainbow which i think is what a lot of people were wanting um, it's also, it's, it's stylistically a bit of a shift from what Gravity's Rainbow was and into not something totally different, but it's not, it doesn't have the same, um, I don't want to say technicality that Gravity's Rainbow had, but te- I mean, Gravity's Rainbow had a, a very technical and, and, um, just a, a different feel overall. Um, it wasn't as warm. I mean, definitely not as warm as something like Vineland or some of his other, you know, Mason and Dixon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of that comes from the fact that it just, yeah, everybody read Gravity's Rainbow, waited 27 years for it, and then they got something that it just wasn't, I guess, what they were expecting it to be. And so they just unfairly assumed that it's, you know, not worth their consideration or or the time to actually like reread it or engage with it on the same level as Gravity's Rainbow. And even for people reading it now who don't have to wait that long, almost three decades to get a book after they finish Gravity's Rainbow, um, I think it comes down to the same thing. I think that they, you know, so many people start with Gravity's Rainbow and then to jump from that to Vineland, while they are very different books, there's still so much uh, through lines, so many through lines between the two because it's it's the same author. You know, there's so much to love about this book it's one of his funniest i think we talked about that at the beginning of mason and dixon like those two maybe inherent vice might be his funniest books like flat out i will laugh out loud at certain scenes uh in all of those books and i think the other major thing that that marked a difference with this book was that in i may be mistaken on the timelines but i think this is around the time he i know he had just gotten married um to his at the time editor i think she stayed his editor too after they were married um i don't think they had had jackson at that time 
Um, but obviously, you know, a lot changes in a person over 27 years. So there's a lot of stylistic shift and, and thematic shift that happens between Gravity's Rainbow and something like this. And so it's not going to be the same book. And it, it, it's absolutely unfair for people to consider that it should be the same book and to dismiss it outright because it's not. And I hate the term pinch on light. And I really think this is where that term started. Oh, and yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a terrible, it's a terrible reductive phrase that just does a disservice. It, you're judging it, I think, when people hear that, that, you know, this is pinch on light or, or bleeding edge is pinch on light. That's setting a tone for them that it's automatically kind of putting that seed in the back of their mind and it's going to cloud their ability to really enjoy it on a first read. So if this is, you know, for those of you listening, if this is your first read, get rid of that idea because this is not pinch on light. It's not easy by any means. You still have to really, uh, there, there's a lot to really still pick apart from in, from within this book. Um, and it's just as pinch on as Gravity's Rainbow, as Against the Day, as Mason and Dixon. It's just a different story. And it's personally one of my favorites. What do you I think? think? It's, uh, I think it's 17 years, by the way. So I think is 27 years is from V. Yeah, because I think it's, it's 70 yeah, you're right. to 90. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, 17. Still a long time. Yeah, it's long ridiculous time, yeah. either way. What do you think of the book in general, Luke? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I did just just finish an audio, uh, listening to the audiobook of the book um, the other day in preparation for doing this podcast because I like to kind of read the book uh, again before we even start and then reread it for a third or fourth time after that um for this podcast but uh i like this book a lot i think it's enjoyable i didn't enjoy the audiobook very much um the dialogue in this book kind of comes across as cringe in that audiobook um to be perfectly <laughs> honest and how it's read it, or... i think it's because it's how it's read because whenever i was okay. reading it again um reading the first two chapters again it didn't it didn't come across nearly as like it, the 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 way the audiobook guy read it was very like you know stonery and like hippie dropout mm. um, kind of parody voice and um, I don't know I mean that kind of maybe dovetails with something I was wanting to talk about because this does kind of remind me of um, Colorado and some people I know in Colorado some some people I've been around in Colorado where it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a more mountainous area. There's a lot of forests. Um, there's a lot of dropouts and kind of more druggy type people. Um, a lot more hippies and stuff, which is, can be true of Colorado where I've spent a lot of time, a lot of my life. Um, but it reminds me of some people I know from there and the way that they talk and it does kind of hit home. And, and it, it, it also reminded me of a few different Cormac McCarthy novels. Um, especially child of God, it's kind of like a lot more uh, lighthearted and not nearly as fucked up version of child of God, where it's this kind of misfit <laughs> guy who everyone knows uh, going around doing all this weird stuff. But instead of it being like really uh, transgressive and in your face with how fucked up it is, it's a lot more lighthearted. Um, this is a warm book. You know, it is kind of at the beginning of his, of his, of his more human uh, books. Um, I mean, for me, it, it is kind of lower tier pension in terms of how much I enjoy it. You know, it's kind of down there with like V and in terms of my, my least favorite pension novels. Uh, that being said, I mean, it's still pension and there's still a lot of depth here. Um, 
even you know you can i'm looking forward to kind of parsing the first two chapters because there is especially the first chapter it is kind of deceivingly it's not simple at all you know it, it's still it's still pinching the the prose is still beautiful um you know the, the plot it starts off pretty propulsive it is it is it is kind of like a it doesn't start directly in media res, but you know we we do get to the action pretty quickly. Um, and the action is pretty zany and, and interesting, um, and I do kind of enjoy the whole like uh, post hippie kind of hangover vibe of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to like about it, and I do I do really really enjoy it. But like I said, it's it's not my favorite by Pynchon. I do think it's 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 one of his worst books, but that's that's on the on the scale of Pynchon. You know, it's not. There's no there's no book by him that I that I regret reading or that I don't enjoy. And I do I have come across some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, I think, in terms of it being just like unrightfully disparaged. Um, but I do agree that it, it doesn't deserve near nearly as much hate as it as it tends to get. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And that it's, it's funny that, that you say the dialogue comes across as cringe because that's always why I don't listen to the audiobooks for for his books or have been wary about it is i feel like hearing um hearing those pieces of dialogue read out would be like kind of insane in a lot of instances um mm-hmm. it, like in speaking of like cormac mccarthy i feel like the movie that he did the screenplay for the counselor where it is basically just Cormac McCarthy dialogue said aloud also sounds ridiculous coming out of human just mouths that are on screen and Michael Fassbender and everyone in that movie. Uh, I feel like I would have the same experience listening to the audiobooks in, in most cases. Um, so that brings us to Will, and I wanted to ask for his thoughts last, not only just to to uh, sort of wrap up the four of us, but also to introduce sort of the the concept of of how the book has been kind of unfairly judged because will did some extra research into that particular sphere so will what were your thoughts and then what uh what was the research that you did yeah i i i really like the book i think it's really fantastic um and that's because i i, I like most of the like conceptual things going on with the book but also, on a much more primary level, I mean, it is it is less technical. I think that is a good way good way to put it, Cody. It is less technically written, not just because you know we don't have characters who are plastics engineers or astronomers, but also that it seems like you know somewhere along the way in those seventeen years, Finchon kind of developed a certain appreciation for humanity's uh, joie de vivre in and of itself um, in a way that he clearly demonstrated but didn't really seem to think it was uh, you know, crucial to his project in his earlier works. And I, I, I really do think that even though Vineland and, you know, Inherent Vice and I'm sure Bleeding Edge, though I haven't read it, are less technically written in that prosaic sense. Um, they they are not actually like worse written. It's not like we're saying this as some kind of uh, 
you know, shorthand for, oh, it's worse, but we're going to be pretentious about it. It's it's not worse. It's the the difference is that in those big scary books of Pynchon's with the technical writing, he is <laughs> bragging. He is writing everything, maybe not with the end goal of showing off, but he doesn't care. He has no shame about showing off. That's not in his mind at all, or it's his primary purpose to some, or not primary, secondary purpose to some degree. Uh, in these books, he has clearly taken the note of, hey, guy, not everyone knows all the words and all the things that you do. You can still be like cool and jazzy with your language. You can still structure analogies incredibly densely and write in a in an insane jazz bebop uh, meter consistently Mm -hmm. you can still do all of that without loading everything with hidden jokes essentially yeah that's a good distinction i mean it's it's a case of of doing more with less and that's you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i think to use a a sort of, I guess, a baseball analogy, like you don't have to swing for the fences every time. It's great to hit a home run, but you can still win a game, you know, just keeping the ball on the ground. And mm-hmm. exactly, that's what he's doing here. Yeah, and it, it you know, the, you can see that, I, I would say that the book that is most similar in style to this one is actually Against the Day. And Against the Day is that technical because its characters are that technical. Mm-hmm. And that, that, to me, demonstrates that this is not like some lack, lag in quality or some you know, desire to say, hey, I'm going to dumb it down, but instead to say, hey, other people exist who aren't engineers. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense. Right. I, I think it's, it's a good representation of his growth as a writer, that he's able yeah. to still do a book like this and get across the the themes and the the concepts that he's trying to get across without adding a lot of uh, of flourish and and keeping it tight really and it's really interesting how you you mentioned not not swinging for the fences every time because if you were going to ask me directly what i thought the the reason that everybody hated uh vineland to use a little bit of, you know, hyperbole. I would point everybody to, and this is not to criticize who I'm about to introduce, I would point everybody to David <laughs> Cowart, um, the, 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 the academic who published in 1990 on the, in the journal Critique, Studies in Contemporary Fiction, Attenuated po- Postmodernism, Pinchon's Vineland, from the University of Southern California. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit from this this paper um, more than I will just this instant, but I would summarize the the reason with this sentence: the bad news. Pinchon has made no effort to surpass gravity's rainbow because if you dig through immediately contemporary papers that that cite this one, it really seems like that's where they stopped reading. It seems like everybody yeah. Yeah. Uh, saw this paper and said, hey, yeah, he didn't try to surpass gravity's rainbow. And I think that's a very funny thing to, to criticize the book for. And he's, mm-hmm. to be fair to Cowart, he is not doing that. 
David Cowart is being completely fair. He is not trying to surpass Gravity's Rainbow, and that is bad news to a lot of people, especially people whose job it is to study literature. Mm -hmm. However, I'm going to now read the rest of that introductory paragraph, and that'll be the end of my, my reading from sources. But I think it demonstrates very well kind of the disconnect between uh, what the four of us have said about the book and what it seems like the literary establishment and following them, the popular culture, uh, felt about the book. Thomas Pynchon, creator of the most significant body of fiction in contemporary America, may have spent some of the last 17 years discovering the limits of the postmodernist aesthetic. Vineland, his long-awaited fourth novel, appears 17 years after the publication in 1973 of the monumental Gravity's Rainbow, widely recognized now as the most important American novel published since World War II. One naturally asks whether this author's art has developed or stagnated over those 17 years. The bad news. Pinchon has made no effort to surpass Gravity's Rainbow. The good news. He has not stood still as a maker of fiction. In Vineland, which may represent a turning point for Pynchon, the author keeps his hand in, modifying some of his old tricks and trying out new ones. In a consideration of this novel's traditional and contemporary features, one encounters an evolutionary text, an experiment in literary hybridization. Conceding that the postures of literary exhaustion may themselves be exhausted, the author combines modernist concerns and postmodernist techniques with some of the features of two kinds of realism, social and magic. The following essay, while scrutinizing the vestiges of a style of aesthetic that Pynchon seems to be outgrowing, will glance at the abish-like question, how postmodern is it, in the course of gauging the traditional elements <laughs> and fresh invention that compose this hybrid. The argument here, introduced in a brief comparison of Pynchon's career with that of Joyce, will focus on technique and the treatment given history and culture including myth. The author of Vineland views these topics through a postmodern lens. They appear foreshortened, flattened, all surface. Yet the novel's title and its mythic extension of contemporary history hint at a broader view. Though Pynchon tends to deconstruct the myths he invokes, they complicate the rendering of an otherwise comprehensively ahistorical contemporaneity. Through a combination of this eccentric mythography with a moral earnestness expressed as a penchant for political didacticism, Pynchon produces, in Vineland, a fiction devoted less to indeterminate postmodernist play than to totalizing modernist purpose. Now, I have been the one... Uh, sorry, end of quote. Now, I have been the one on this show in the past, bringing up this whole modernist-postmodernist dialectic before. So I hope people take it in good faith when I say I don't understand really what Cowart is trying to say there. And I've read the essay, and I, I do now understand what he's trying to say, literally. But I think it rests on a, a fundamental misunderstanding of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the idea that Pynchon's previous works did not take care to situate the actual experience of the reader in the time being portrayed. I think it's I think it was probably easier back then to ignore that especially, you know, Cowart was probably somebody who read Gravity's Rainbow when it came out and spent years studying it and probably had family who had been around you know since well before the 40s 
And so knew what people sounded like, knew how people talked. And so it's probably to some extent underestimating just how well Tinchon actually encodes those senses into his previous works. But the bigger thing I'm going to point out is that the primary mechanism by which this article, this essay, discusses Pynchon is by analogy to James Joyce. I'm a big fan of Joyce. James Joyce did try to surpass Ulysses, and maybe a hundred people have read Finnegan's Wake. A hundred, you think? I think maybe, yeah. As one of them who's read part of it, it's, yeah, probably a hundred, maybe. <laughs> Since 1939. Like, seriously. Pinchon wears his Joyce adoration on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all over the place in all of his books, and it's it's... Very subtle, if you if you are not also a fan of James Joyce. But it's there. Tenshin knows that nobody read Finnegan's Wake. Tenshin knows that, it sure, it doesn't matter if your book is not winning the National Book Award. It doesn't matter if your book isn't being sold in every store for the next 20 years. That doesn't matter. All that matters is you write a work that matters to someone. You know, that's the idea. Right. That, that's what he says throughout all of his works whenever he talks about artistry. And um, even that line of thinking has its limits. There's no way in hell anybody was going to write, or anybody was going to read something that was more formally experimental than Gravity's Rainbow. Period. Especially not after the 80s. It just wasn't going to happen. And the, the fundamental issue here is that people seem to have taken this idea that he's leaning more into, you know, modernist concerns as some kind of de-escalation of those concerns. When they're not, they just are not. Postmodernist concerns are like meta-concerns. That is, the, the issue of postmodernism is the issue of issues. This It's not... It's not something that really has a lot of bulk to it, which he gets at. But modernist issues are just all of the other issues, if you're going to frame them as a dichotomy. Mm. There, there are postmodernist issues, which are issues of nothing, and there are all of the others. <laughs> and so he, P- Pynchon takes this book to write a family drama that is incredibly dense with illusion and poetry and meaningful symbolism that is couched in like painfully cringy um, political didacticism and continues to make an impressive novel that does not like suit itself with the concerns of you know a book published in the 1910s or 1920s However, this is how it was discussed. Everybody treated Thomas Pynchon as, quote, creator of the most significant body of fiction in contemporary America. You can't live up to that. It's not a matter of even, like, people having their expectations up. People were talking about him like that. They weren't expecting a book. They were expecting a Bible. And they already got a Bible, so I don't know why they were expecting another one. Yeah, uh, you know, even Jesus needed to to perform a sequel by raising from the dead. 
Um, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> Bible too. Don't cross him. <laughs> well, I so uh, there's two things you brought up that immediately put thoughts in 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 my head. Will one the thing you said, you know, trying to to write, uh, trying to to compose like a, a piece of work with the the stated goal of like always having copies in stores and always you know selling copies and all of that. I do find it very ironic that this is the book that. Um, I have seen in stores exactly one time. Uh, I've seen one copy of Vineland, and it is the first edition hardcover copy that I own. Uh, outside of that, I have I have never seen Vineland uh, in in stores. So he did really? certainly no I, for whatever like a reason. New, new copy or used? Even I, I've never found any copies other than the one that I that I own. That's I know I know fully I well times. <laughs> that I can. Yeah, order I've, them, I found new but, copies. Yeah, I know that there's the Penguin like modern classics copy that that generally floats around in stores, but Yeah, I for, see that one at half price a lot. For some reason I've just never come across one. I don't I don't know why. Maybe they're they're not in existence in Wisconsin for some reason. People are buying uh, them. That's good. I, yeah, maybe. Um so he certainly didn't succeed at that, at least not in, in in the Midwestern territories anyway. But I think the other thing that that you quoted by Cowart that really stuck out to me was was the the quotation of how postmodern is it? Which I'm I'm gonna say something kind of controversial. I think a lot of the people on subreddits like Thomas Pinchon or the associated members of the literary sort of field that he wrote in can be guilty of thinking that way when it comes oh, to Vineland or really the approach of reading anything uh, from the standpoint of well, if I'm gonna read this, how postmodern is it? That's mm-hmm. what I'm really into, and if it ends up being somewhat outside of that lens, maybe I don't want to read it. Um, when every author has change and evolution and becomes different over time, sometimes they get worse, like James Patterson. Um, or sometimes, <clears throat> or sometimes is James Patterson really just, writing books anymore? Let's be fair there. I, well, and I would also say that's worse than actually writing them. Yeah, Bill Clinton's um, writing all of his stuff now. Yeah, or <laughs> you know, sometimes you have a writer who can just hammer out like a thousand books a year, like a Colleen Hoover, where pretty much just it always stays the same. But in general, most writers do have some kind of an evolution where they they change the things that they're interested in mm-hmm. and they they develop a new style or a new a new attitude towards things and like we've already said 17 years passed in which thomas pinchon was like harangued by the press and he won the national book award and basically won the pulitzer and people started treating his last book like a bible as as you said and as the the you know creator of the greatest body of work in contemporary literature and then he got married and may or may not have had a child at this point. Like uh, people not expecting him to be different after all of that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's unfair. It's unfair, but it's also frankly insane. Yeah. Like if, if you, if you think back to where you were 17 years ago, no matter how old yeah. you are, are right now, are you anything like what you used to be? Maybe if you are, you know, 80 years old, the show maybe you'll be about the same but but for most people who are through their you know 20s 30s 40s even 50s like there there is still a significant amount of evolution that takes place over a time scale oh, like for sure. that how, how dare you i was reading ulysses at age 10 i mean that's very <laughs> that's very impressive well <laughs> yeah but you I, never, I mean it was upside down but i read it <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i, I think that Speaking of Ulysses, I think that your 
your dichotomy of Ulysses to um, Finnegan's Wake to Pinchon's Gravity's Rainbow to Vineland is very apt. I mean, I personally subscribe to the idea that Finnegan's Wake was mostly written as an exercise to fuck with the reviewing public and the people who were trying to sort of ascertain all of the individual little meanings out of everything that James Joyce was writing. I'm sure that he had a genuine plan there and a genuine theme and all of that. I don't think that the book was composed entirely as a joke, but I think that historically looking at, at, at the ways in which he responded to people who had questions about it and were trying to understand the point of it, where he would just laugh at them while he was literally on his deathbed is very telling of the, the, the sort of way that he had approached that work, especially after it being published versus, you know, you go from a gravity's rainbow to a Vineland and you see, in my opinion, a more mature writer. Mm-hmm. I genu- I genuinely believe that. Gravity's more nuanced, a- more... Yeah. yeah. Gravity's Rainbow is a masterpiece. Absolutely it is. And is is a work of fiction written by someone who... It, it, like, can't, it cannot be replicated no matter how hard you tried, and it has so much to say about basically everything of import at that time and that is is eternally relevant all of the things that have been said about it all of the ink that's been spilled about it is so true but i think that the ability to then move into a book like vineland which to cody's point is more nuanced is significantly warmer as far as its relationship even in the first two chapters of establishing the relationship between zoid and his daughter and everything that he does over the course of the book is i believe all you're marked by a, a writer who is becoming more mature in his characterization, more mature in trying to understand how people work and present that on the page accurately. Because outside of a handful of characters in Gravity's Rainbow and, you know, Crying of Lot 49, none of Pinchon's characters seem like real people um, or, or people that you could encounter or yeah. have experiences that we can relate to up, up but, to this up to this novel yeah yeah absolutely but suddenly that starts to emerge in vineland is it different yeah. yes is it bad certainly not yeah and it's it's notable that you you mention oh there's no one could ever write something like gravity's rainbow again and that's 100% true on all of the latitudes from the obvious to the complex but especially relevant to this is that he was like 32 years old like yes is he a grown man sure 32 year olds are not experts in anything and he wrote a book about everything yeah so the fact that like he had major there are major gaps in that book absolutely and a lot of those gaps are in some way symbolically filled by vineland yeah I, i i couldn't have said that better myself yeah I think the last thing I want to say about it is, you know, to kind of touch on, on what everybody's kind of, I mean, every, you, everyone has made great points about, you know, what the difference between Gravity's Rainbow and Vineland. I think at the end of the day, no matter what he put out after Gravity's Rainbow was going to get shit on, mm-hmm. regardless of what it was. If it was Gravity's Rainbow 2.0, people would have shit on it all over it because it's Gravity's Rainbow. He's just trying to do the same thing again. He, he was put in a situation where a lot of other writers would have felt that they were, you know, trapped in a corner and probably honestly would have tried to do a gravity's rainbow 2.0. He did 
what I think is the smarter move, the better move for him as a person and as a writer, which is to just write what he wanted to write. And what we got was Vineland and Mason and Dixon against the day. And I think we're all the better for that because we got the trajectory that he got as a, as a growing and maturing writer rather than someone writing an incredibly successful novel that pushed a lot of, of boundaries of literature that was critically lauded, rightly so, but he didn't try to follow that up with more of the same. And mm -hmm. I think he deserves commendation for that. And I would invite the reader uh, slash listener of this show and the books that accompany it, having just finished Mason and Dixon, if you've been reading along with us, to consider what would have happened if he published that after Gravity's Rainbow. He probably would have been criticized for not being able to discuss just as impactful topics in an economy of words when compared to Gravity's Rainbow from a standpoint of length. And mm -hmm. he also likely would have been criticized for not being able to do it in plainer language when compared to Gravity's Rainbow. Most likely the criticism, if I was to guess, would be Thomas Pinchon is trying to find a way to be just as smart as he always has been, but in different ways than Gravity's Rainbow, and it fails because he's gone too far. By trying to render his book in 16th century dialogue, and by expanding the length out to 800 pages that tells the life of two relatively unknown historical figures, we, have, we see the limits of his ability as a writer who's constantly trying to one-up him. Probably would have been yep. something along the lines of the criticism would have come out after this oh oh and there are I, th I have two more i have two notes that i would add to that that i yeah. think are more damning that or that would have been read as more damning than anything you said if if either mason or okay if mason and dixon had been published in like 1989 um mason and dixon is by far pension's most finnegan's wakey book uh-huh people would have shat on him so hard like critics would have hated it, even if they wanted to like the book. On the face of it, as pretentious as that paragraph of David Cowart's essay is, they would have hated it if they actually got something as ambitious as what they're talking about, like you said, because it would be exactly what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, gosh, where did it go, brain? Never mind. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Cody, did you want to read the quote you found by Harold sure. Bloom? Yeah. So while while Will was reading his uh, his quote from David Coward, I was um, I was curious. My brain just immediately went to Harold Bloom because he's always kind of the go to for you know pinch on praise. Um, in nineteen ninety, I'm, I'm quoting this from. Uh, there's a review called uh, Pinch on's Pop Fiction. Um, by Eric Sandberg. This was published in 2013 um, from the New Rambler, uh, which is an online uh, magazine. Oh, I'm sorry. This is November 2015. Uh, and I'll post the link if anybody's curious on this. We'll put this in the show notes. But um, in there, he says, uh, not every reader has been comfortable with this shift in Pinchon's work. Harold Bloom, in a 1991 interview with Antonio Weiss, described Vineland as a, quote, total disaster, end quote. In fact, the greatest, quote, disaster in modern American fiction, a piece of sheer ineptitude, a hopelessly hollow book that has got no, uh, that has not got in it a redeeming sentence, hardly a redeeming phrase, end quote, and contrasted it specifically with the power of his previous work. 
so insane yeah i think the, I think the one thing that gets, gets kind of lost in pension fandom and, and different stuff is just how popular uh gravity's rainbow was like you know gravity's rainbow would have would have sold hundreds of thousands of like literally i think over two hundred thousand copies um you know, so it was it was always going to be uh, his next book was always going to be a really big deal. And the fact that it took 17 years for it to come out, um, I think, led to a feeling of anticlimax for a lot of people. Um, there's that David Foster Wallace quote from a it's a pretty famous one. You see it online a lot from a letter from him to Jonathan Franzen, where he talks about how he had read Vineland and he assumed that Pynchon had just spent the past 17 years smoking weed and watching TV. <laughs> um which is a pretty it's a i mean it's kind of a bitter quote but it's a pretty good quote um but you know i think you guys i think that just kind of sum up what y'all have been saying is that you know there's yeah. he was never he was always going to get shit for his next book like even if it was somehow better than gravity's rainbow like the initial response would not have been the same um i yeah like i said i mean you know gravity's rainbow would have achieved this kind of mythical status especially given the author's uh, reclusiveness and the fact that he hadn't published again in 17 years. And there were all those, um, you know, pop, I think we went over all the Wanda and ASCII stuff during Crying of Law 49, but that would have yeah. happened in the eighties, I think. Um, so there was a kind of a question of what Pynchon had been doing with this time that, you know, we'll never really know. Um, I mean, now we can assume that he was writing Mason and Dixon and against the day and Vineland, but, um, but yeah, I, I do think that that's kind of a helpful um, way to look at this book is that, you know, it was, it was never going to be, um, it, was, it was impossible for it to to match its predecessor. Uh, it, it finally came back to me, the second thing I was going to say, sorry. Um, the, the other issue, if Mason and Dixon had been the next book published, is that the the constant refrain for... The, the, in terms of like actual negative criticism for his first three books, the the only consistent issue was the way that he represented women. And there are ways to talk about that that forgive him in various ways, and there are ways to talk about it that condemn him in various ways. If he had published Mason and Dixon in 1989, 17 years after Gravity's Rainbow, 17 years in which essentially feminism had begun to be, to, to take hold in the literary establishment as we speak of it today. As that tide had started to turn away from the the old men classics toward, okay, we need to create a new canon with more women, more minority groups. You come out of you come out of that 17 year hiatus with another book about two guys with like zero primary female characters you are not going to get um any 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 decent uh assumption of good faith even if the next book he'd come out with was vineland yeah i mean i think the only other book that i can think of that maybe faced a similar uphill battle from an expectation perspective was maybe the tunnel by william h gas because he'd been writing that for 26 years um and had been releasing portions of it in in magazines up until it actually was completed but yeah i i, I think i think uh, yeah all of the points here have been have been made incredibly well and i i think that 
if anything, what the four of us are are hoping to do with this show is encourage everybody to go into it with a completely open mind. Obviously, a, a, a big majority of the people who listen to our show are from the Thomas Pinchon subreddit, because that was where the show started and where everything got put together. And we talk to you guys on that forum somewhat often. So a lot of those people have read this book before, and it is oftentimes the, the last one that you go to, because it's the sort of completionist thing that people engage in. But if you're, if you're going into this book for the first time, or the second time, just all we would ask, I think, and we would all agree with this, is just keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself to consider the fact that this is this is a distinct work, separate from the rest of his canon, just like everything else. This is not a sequel to anything. This is not meant to be an expansion on anything. It deals in, of course, similar themes to other books that he has written, but it is its own distinct work with its own merits that need to be considered without comparison to anything else. And that's really what it is that we're going to do as we break down this book and and move forward um before we get into the chapters as a whole does any does anyone have anything else to add to this before we move on i just want to assure our audience that don't worry i will be here to shoehorn in references to the other books (laughs) that that won't disappear i will i will keep doing that that good work but no it won't be our primary focus at all because it it shouldn't be and it won't be (laughs) yeah I have nothing else. I mean, it's, I think we covered everything pretty well. This is to me to, to, I'll make a music analogy here. This is the, the MBV to Loveless. Oh, that's not a bad point of comparison. I think it might, it, it's almost the same amount of time. Yeah. 91 to 2013. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. I, I, I think with that being said, uh, we should transition uh, in, into the, the book as a whole. Um, Will, did you do your lovely summary work? Well, I did some summary work. I don't know about lovely, but... <laughs> so, chapter one. Our first introduction, to whom seems to be the protagonist of the books, shows Zoid Wheeler waking up late one morning in 1984 to find that his daughter, Prairie, had finished off the Count Chocula before heading to work and that he was out of cigarettes. So, after a bowl of Fruit Loops topped with Nesquik and smoking a few still useful butts, he calls in to formally deliver his preemptory press release to the local news. It comes to seem that Zoid has plans to renew his mental disability checks policy by, as usual, dressing up in a brilliant muumuu and, uh, unusually for him, chainsawing a logger bar to bits in full view of the press. According to the person on the other end of the phone, that was not the plan they knew. Shrugging this off, Zoid drives off to his preferred discount plus-size store to collect his outfit and fill up his car and purse-sized chainsaw. On the way to Logjam, Zoid defends his fashion choices to onlookers before arriving to find, horribly, that all the wood accoutrement in the establishment had been replaced with more upscale materials in the time, sometime in the last month. Furthermore, the bartender, an old bandmate of Zoid's, explains to him that no channel's gonna send no crew this far out of town, and advises him to stick stick to what his brand's good for, jumping through plate glass windows. According to Zoid, that gig was just a little too pricey these days. Lawyers were always after him for damages that used to mostly be forgiven. He and the bartender continue to chat, 
talk about the new the new Star Wars and the changing times as various lumberjacks become hypnotized by Zoid's own visage of the divine feminine and make clumsy passes. Before Zoid can move on out of his own accord, Van Meter, his producer of sorts, calls the bar's phone, demanding Zoid explain his absence from the set of the news story. The camera the camera crews down at the cucumber lounge were getting impatient. Van also did not know the reason for the changeup; he'd just gotten the call. Hanging up, Zoid departs the logjam as graciously as his idolaters will allow, and reverses his journey. When he finally asks Meter the meaning of all this, he is only pointed toward the figure of Hector Zuniga, the DEA agent, who'd been trailing him for years and trying to bring him into the fold of informants listed in the agency's Rolodexes. They exchange a few brief words before Zoid assumes his role for the cameras. When the glass shatters in some new way, Hector punctuates the meeting with a bite out of a shard, and Zoid knows more or less he has to attend the, <laughs> attend the meeting tomorrow that Hector had insisted on. Arriving home after the traditional lockup and subsequent release, Prairie's first question for Zoid is whether she can cannibalize the dress. Of course she can. After watching the broadcast of the window pane sham, Prairie praises his talent and dedication and shares how much her cadre of pals share that opinion. Especially her boyfriend, Isaiah 2-4, apparently, which surprises her father. He thinks it's best to keep the sugar to himself. They talk some about com domestic concerns, money and its lack, the causes for that, and then Isaiah 2-4 comes up again. After fulfilling his patriarchal duty of sternly commanding his daughter not to trust that mohawk-ridden lad, robot name and all, Prairie segues their approach into a pitch for Zoid to hear out Isaiah's own pitch. Appearing from nowhere in particular, he appears, and after a clumsy dance of, of daps set to purple haze and apology for some previous instance of insult, he launches into a business plan for a shooting range, upgraded with all sorts of colorfully and provocatively distasteful scenarios, from a jungle obstacle course called Third World Thrills with gorilla-shaped targets, to an urban setting with racially diverse criminal elements to fire upon. All he wants from Zoid is a cosign on the loan. Owing to his tragically poor credit, credit rating, he dodges this tempting offer, but softens the blow with an offer of a gig at a, at a crime family wedding for Isaiah's band. No offense taken, the punk disappears into the bathroom to call about it immediately. They land the job, though it may help for them to practice some classic Italian wedding songs and find some way to pass as a member of the Peninsula's descendants. Zoid's extensive experience in that domain assured him that the boy would be fine, or at least that he'd have plausible deniability should anything go wrong. Thank you for the summary, Will. Uh, I think that it's still lovely. I'm not sure what the, the self-deprecation was for. You do a great job. Um, <laughs> as far as general thoughts on uh, on these first two chapters, um, what do we think? How do we how do we feel about these chapters? I think it's a it's a good start. As, as Luke mentioned earlier, uh, it it gets us into the action pretty quick, and um, we we get a good feel right off the bat. I think for for Zoid and uh, even for the other kind of smaller characters that we we come across uh, between Hector Zuniga and uh, Prairie. Um, so it's it. I think it's a really it does a good job in, I think it's like 20 pages altogether of really setting the tone and the scene of, of what the eighties were. Mm -hmm. Um, because the eighties were a, 
a very unique time in American history. It's weird. Uh, it was a weird time. So much cocaine. Um, <laughs> it was as someone who was born in the eighties. Like I, I didn't. I was, I was at the tail end of it when uh, they bottle fed you with start, that shit. Do what? They bottle fed you with that shit. Yeah, I know. It was like it. it a lot of that carried over into the early nineties. And so as a kid, you know, I was still uh, a, a lot of the, the kind of vibe that was left over that eighties hangover, the haze that was there. Um, the sleaze of it was still in the air in the early nineties. Um, but I think, yeah, in these first 20 pages, like it's, it does a great job of, of really capturing that, that feel and that, that time, uh, very well. And it, it will continue to do so as the story goes on. um, and I think that uh, we, th- as we mentioned, you know, in the in the pre-discussion discussion, there's there's a lot to unpack in these in these pages. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of pop culture, a lot of um, interesting ideas that are starting to really be formed, and we're kind of you know slowly working into what we're going to be really looking at and examining in the book. Um, it's you know coming off of, of Mason and Dixon and, and the opening paragraph for that and the eloquence with which it was written, you know, as we talked about earlier, this isn't the same style of prose necessarily, but I still think it's a really well done opening paragraph. Um, it's does what it needs to do. We, we understand where we are and who we're seeing and um, sets up the story that's to come. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think, to keep in mind, one of the things that kind of exemplifies every single book that Pinchon has written is he's very interested in periods of change, like yeah. periods of, of drastic historical change occurring. So Mason and Dixon, change and evolution and modernity is all over that book the entire the entire time. The the change to to rockets as a, a viable you know weapon usage and all of the things that will follow that that weapons creation and what it you know signals to the military industrial complex is a huge period of metamorphosis and change that is covered in gravity's rainbow you know the, these are things that he he goes through time and time again and there is a lot to consider in Vineland in particular about how the arrival of the 80s was really a sea change to a lot of things. Yeah. Um, there, there was the really the beginning of the mass consumeristic culture that started in the 1980s, especially from a standpoint of pointlessly gendered products, which we already get in the first chapter. Um, and how you you need to have these two different categories of people buying two different categories of products, which leads to twice the profit for the company. You have the expansion and really kind of ramping up of like hyper processed foods, and that being a very common thing that people that people eat. We get that over a lot of the of the two chapters here. We have kind of the firm death of the hippie movement as a, as an idea and as a thing, which kind of started in seventy seven sort of around the time that like punk music started to to get recorded which was in a lot of ways a reaction to to the hippie movement and and rock and roll and all of that and then you also have the arrival of a of a subject metal out of that more extreme music happening in the 80s so it was a massive period of 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 change in american history and that is very well represented by just the first two chapters here and i think that was the biggest thing that i felt 
reading through chapters one and two is just how well set and well steeped that idea of a metamorphosis in culture and in the country and in people and the clashing of those ideas was was very well um, presented. But also a lot of this did remind me of my childhood. Like a lot of this did remind me of like eating a giant bag of Cheetos, which they do yeah. in front of in front of the TV and just like watching shitty television and like the kind of arrival of very distinct subcultures of people in like, you know, Prairie's boyfriend being like either a punk or a metalhead or, you know, whatever particular area that he occupies and how that is clear from the way that he dresses from head to toe and like how he dyes his hair a certain color and, and like the scheme that he has. Um, the, the discussion of like video arcades being a part of his like violence amusement center um, in addition to real guns and all of that. Like a lot of it did, it did remind me of, of different elements of, of my childhood for sure. Um, and just, you know, that that's that's the overall like feeling i get from these these chapters is it's a lot of place setting for the 80s as a decade in the country and what that felt like and how that is changing and zoid wheeler is a pretty perfect character to use to represent that because he is somewhat of a of a revenant of a bygone era by the time this book is is starting yeah i want to piggyback real quick off of what you mentioned about a lot of his books taking place at times of change, because I think that's also something that, uh, that we will examine more in this is not just that this is a period of change, but this is also, I think a period in American history, really maybe even in world history, but I I think uniquely in American history where the, the speed at which these cultural schisms start happening, the changes that start popping into uh, like pop culture with you know music and and TV and and everything else is also due to the in the extreme uh, uptick in technology and the speed at mm-hmm. which that works and the rapidity which with information could be not just distributed but processed and distributed across the entire country. So now you have you know where these where these kind of cultural changes were taking a bit of time to actually like get hold into the zeitgeist. This is the time at which those changes start happening a lot faster. Like the punk scene really only lasted uh, less than 10 years. Yeah. And then it shifted into, into hair metal and power mm-hmm. metal and, and, you know, speed metal and all that. And then that shifted into the early nineties into um, both the, the pop music movement and the, the alternative rock music. It, all of that within about 10, 15 years, whereas previously those kind of changes happened over decades. So it's a lot of information overload that's happening to society um, that I think kind of drives a lot of these changes that are happening around this time. Yeah, which pairs well with the fact that the Reagan era was really when political accelerationism yep. became Hyper-ca- a thing. Hyper-capitalism and, and political ideology kind of became yeah. one thing, and it, what a beast it became. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I'm sorry. Um, Luke, what did you think of these first two chapters? There's a lot to like here. Um, you know, the, the opening, the opening page where Zoid's kind of scrambling to get a, a get up and around, um, there's country music playing and kind of the weird mixture of, of rural, uh, redneck vibes and kind of a more hippie or Western, um, 
aesthetic is is uh is familiar to me in terms of you know i've lived in the austin texas area even parts of the colorado front range like denver can have some aspects of that where it's a weird mixture of of rural and urban and um liberal and conservative and you know there's all these i mean it's a it's a nice snapshot of america in general where it's all these kind of different types of people mixing um you know, there's the there's a star wars reference which is really nice uh not yeah i mean i really like that i mean it, like the whole, the whole thing about it changing the area around there like i was just watching the uh one of the planet of the apes movies one of the modern ones and that has all the stuff about the redwoods um because it's a very beautiful area and that that is kind of continuously evoked throughout the book is how beautiful the the area that um that the book takes place in is um you know zoid i mean this is maybe a bit of a spoiler but zoid doesn't end up being quite as big of a quite as major of a character as the beginning implies uh that being said he is a really nice uh kind of intro to the world of the book where it's kind of all these zany weirdos Mm -hmm. uh, on both sides of the law doing all this zany weird stuff um yeah, I mean, I I I like the opening a lot. I mean, I'll we'll get into kind of some more of the details later, but there's some kind of, you know, the whole the whole thing of mental health, um, and there needing to be a spectacle to prove that you're mentally ill is is really interesting to me. Um, his relationship with his daughter is really well done. Zoe's relationship with Prairie is really well done. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, Prairie is is a pretty major character in this book, and I she, she does she does exhibit some real like some real kind of humanity, and she she does kind of seem like a like she could be a real character. She's one of the few characters in this book that um doesn't seem like a caricature of somebody pinching nose or something. You know, like she's not overly stylized like a lot of characters in this book. Um. Yeah, and I mean, the, you know, we kind of get a setup for the the later wedding scene, which is nice. Um, there's some nice foreshadowing of what's to come in these in these pages. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot to like here. I, I, um, like I said, I, it, it definitely, it definitely sets up the rest of the book quite well, in my opinion, in terms of introducing you to the world and to some of the characters. Yeah, what about you, Will? Well, I'm going to I'm going to uh, introduce a reaction which I've brought up a few times in in the previous books we've covered on this show. Mm. Um and that is that is intense intense nausea. <laughs> I love these chapters on a, on a word and sentence level. I think the characters are all incredibly well fleshed out. I I could not believe myself when I was writing the the the, the summary and I came through the introduction to Hector and I was like oh he says like two lines here he is such a big character and I don't mean in the story I mean he feels huge mm -hmm. he feels mm -hmm. so much larger than life and it's not just like oh I thought there was I thought he showed up more no he just feels bigger than like two paragraphs and it's you know it part of that has to do with how he intersects with some of the themes of the book and all that but no I mean the characterization in these early chapters are incredibly concise and efficient um, and the the actual subjects are either funny or very uh, entertaining in some other way, but um, for for you you old farts, 
Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Um, you you guys remember the '80s? I you know don't really remember anything prior to like 299 or so. Um, that the similarity, the the way that in all of his other books you read these first chapters and it's like a flat you're flashed to the past and it might not be like evocative of humanity but it is evocative of things in the past. Mm-hmm. This is just it is just the same to today as it was in the 1984. <laughs> and it makes me so sick. Um not with the yeah. book but with ourselves and all of us <laughs> in America and all of that good stuff. Well, and that that brings up a great point that what Zoid is doing in order to keep receiving mental disability checks is something that essentially people do for free on the internet and social media all of the time now yeah it's tiktok it's 1984 tiktok (laughs) where maybe people aren't you know defenestrating themselves which i i love that there is a word in the language specifically i the same thing i don't yeah so i i had heard the word defenestrate before but i didn't know what it specifically meant and upon googling it to to find out that it is a word specifically about either you know throwing somebody through a plate glass window or being thrown through a plate glass window of your own volition is crazy to me that that has yeah. its own definition yeah, so that's... you know may, yeah so maybe people on tiktok aren't defenestrating themselves but they are doing similarly ridiculous things in public just for the exposure or to be like you know, potentially some of them famous. For a paycheck. Yeah, some of them yeah. Yeah, for a yeah. Paycheck. yeah. If if you true. get famous enough, then yeah, absolutely for a it's paycheck. Andy Warhol's "Everyone's Famous for 15 Minutes" thing is is more yeah. prescient now. I mean, it it literally it feels like it's 15 minutes. Like a lot of this stuff, it's you know they get that fleeting uh, moment of fame online, and then it's on to the next thing. And so, you know, there it was. I hope you had fun. Yeah. Yeah, and. I- I I know, I I I know that both uh, you, Luke, and Cody have crazy theories. Um, I promise, <laughs> mine are crazier. <laughs> um, so right now, I'm struggling to to say anything that doesn't lead into those. Um, but c- suffice it to say, I I like the book. I really like these chapters on paper. I hate the fact that they feel so immediate to me in 2023, <laughs> and well, it can't it's... have helped that I grew up a decent portion of my childhood in Western Oregon. So I, I've been around these people. This yeah. is, that's where they went after Vineland got gentrified. <laughs> they went to Western Oregon. I know these <laughs> people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, Zoid, you like, you can copy. I, I shouldn't say copy paste. You could look at Zoid and he, if you plugged him into, I would even say like 2002, 2003, he, that's jackass. That's, that's those guys. Yeah, fair. Doing, you know, what they were doing for money. And, you know, I think that uh, you could argue the difference between that and, and what a lot of what happens on like TikTok and stuff like that now. Like they were doing that to themselves and Zoid is doing it to himself. It's not hurting anybody else. Um, the current trends can, dip into that you know causing harm to others kind of area unfortunately but it's still this the concept is the same yeah they're doing what Zoid was doing as quote-unquote work for 
nothing but you know whatever currency likes are i guess yeah i i do also find the irony of what zoid is doing very funny in that he is you know sort of trying to keep the torch burning for the hippie movement in 1984 by like (laughs) not working and sort of kind of like sticking it to the man but is also living off of the government dime by Mm -hmm. doing something that requires public exposure for you know receiving his his mental disability checks like it just it's such an intersection of like i guess he's kind of still ripping off the government because he's not actually mentally disabled but he's pretending to be but at the same time he's still like receiving benefits from the government and living yeah money like it's just it is it is very it's just a very interesting like intersection of irony and how a lot of that does still sort of, I think, play into the general insanity of what the 80s are as a decade and, and, and how strange it was where it just kind of felt like things from the decades prior were, were dying and something new was taking place that was weird and involved money in ways that wasn't new or, or, or was new rather and hadn't been done before and just all of the the kind of weird metamorphosis that the decade represents. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's... it's the trajectory that a lot of those sixties uh, countercultural movement uh, leaders essentially mm-hmm. spiraled into. Unfortunately, you're your Abby Hoffman's and Jerry Rubin's and um, uh, God, I'm blanking on the like Bobby seal. I don't, I don't know about Bobby seal so much, but you know, that was the thing. Like they, a lot of them either became a part of the system or they had to find ways to work with the system to, stay alive basically yeah and it sucked like seeing those people who had such a passion for making a a change that they just got beat down so bad and that's where they landed but that's that's what happened and that's kind of i I think a big part of this book see i thought you were going to talk about the prescience of zoid dressing up as a woman and diving through a glass wall it is prescient. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, so, kind of, kind of getting to the the eighties as a whole and how that represents the book. We have we have two things mentioned in the first chapter uh, that that both myself and Cody have made allusions to in our thoughts about the chapters as a whole, and that is like mass market produced highly refined food right away, which we get to. We get to them eating sugar cereal for breakfast mm-hmm. on on page three, like immediately. <laughs> which, Third paragraph. Yeah, which which is like, I mean, that's still a thing, and and is still trying to be marketed as like a balanced breakfast is eating something like Fruit Loops, or uh, God forbid, Count Chocula. Um, Oh, the glory which days. Which they were, which they were horribly, out of. <laughs> horribly sugared. I yeah. used to eat cookies for breakfast. Cookie crisp was cookie literally crisp. chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. You, you just poured milk pour on. fucking milk over and then eat a yeah. bowl of it and then go to school. Yeah. yeah. And they wondered why we couldn't pay attention in class. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was where ADHD began. Cookie yeah. crisp. Um, hey, now. Then... <laughs> hey, now. They changed cookie crisp before I was born. And I got the trash cookie crisp with no cookies, and I still got ADHD. So it's not that. I don't that. think you got yeah. the burglar guy either. They took him out of the picture, yeah. too. Yeah. The, the burglar guy? 
the cook, the cooking See, yeah no no yeah say. they changed yeah. him but he like there was a weird period where they were still airing those ads contemporaneously oh, okay. with the new ones it's weird <laughs> we kind of love the 80s the 80s are just so insane like i i don't like wonder woman 84 bad movie but it does capture the insanity of like 80s mass market consumerism and like the the expansion of malls and everything very well mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. of what it does um this is really the only like contemporary sort of thing that i can compare this to uh the second thing that we get right away too is is as i had previously mentioned like the the creation of just strangely gendered products like why does this need to be specifically for men or specifically for women um a trend is, that continues still sadly. oh absolutely yeah don't get me started i will start complaining about women's razors for the next 20 minutes oh, do we want to do. talk about the lady's bick the pen and, and i'm women? not i'm not going to the bathroom if i don't have a pack of dude wipes with me oh yeah yeah because only men can use dude wipes right. stay away from the bathroom we only have this one thing yes yeah <laughs> see that's that's all you get <laughs> So um, to do a to do a bit of like a close read of the first few words, it is interesting to me that the book starts off with later than usual. Um, just in the context of you know, like his first three books were all released within, uh, like V came out in sixty three, Law forty nine in like sixty seven, and then Gravity Rainbow in seventy three. So there's about five years between each of them, and then like we were talking about, there's seventeen years between this one and Gravity's Rainbow. So I do think that starting off with That's yeah, later good... than usual. Is a really interesting way to start the book. Well, yeah. and continuing on deep read, um, it's 1984, and it's a creeping fig in the window. I'm not going to connect that second one to anything because that will suck um, if I do that now. I'll do it later in the series. I promise. <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that. <laughs> Otherwise, um, I'm gonna talk about um, 1984 later in this episode. I okay. think that it's very relevant. The Even though it's album? very obvious. Um. So, <laughs> the other the other thing that I, I wanted to point out from sentence two before we go back to the gendered products bit is um, it specifically says a summer afternoon in 1984. If they've been eating Count Chocula since the previous October, how like how bad has that cereal gone? By the point that they're upset that they're running out of it in in the summertime, like that, just I think goes to show probably the poverty that Zoid and his daughter are living in more than anything oh, else. But just that cereal had so much sugar in it, it couldn't age. It but was... like, I this it had to be stale. Like it came that way. That's how it was <laughs> processed cardboard <laughs> that they put sugar on top of and sprinkled a healthy dollop of like chocolate powder on it. There's yeah, no nutritional value fair. in that whatsoever. That's fair. <laughs> Just that, that concept though, that you may, you may have been eating the same, uh, yeah, the same cereal for almost a year, depending on what month in the summer it is. Um, but we, we get around to a, a description of a lady's chainsaw. Um, does somebody want to read that quote uh, for, for us? Yeah, I can, I can take it. Um, Please do. Let me, let me pull it up here real quick. Let me, I have my book. I didn't highlight in this one or mark anything with pen like I did with Mason and Dixon. So. Um, oh, here we go. Okay. 
Um, I'll just read the whole paragraph because it's pretty short. The already confused Zoid, whose survival instincts may not have been working all the way up to spec, decided to produce the chainsaw from his bag. Buster, he called plaintively to the owner behind the bar, where's the media? The implement attracted immediate attention from everyone in the room, not all of it technical curiosity. It was a tailor-made ladies' chainsaw, quote, tough enough for timber, as the commercial said, but petite enough for a purse. The guide bar, handle grips, and housing were faced in genuine mother of pearl and spelled out in rhinestones on the bar. Surrounded by saw teeth ready to buzz was the name of the young woman he'd borrowed it from, which onlookers took to be Zoid's drag name, Cheryl. (laughs) Um, I I love that description for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, because it is such an accurate uh, description of, like, how women's products would be marketed during this time frame. And up to the mid or like the early 2000s i would say where there's some sort of you know statement like tough enough for timber or but small enough for a purse like that is such an a perfect dichotomy that all of those ads drop but the the other reason i wanted to bring this up specifically right after i read that i then immediately thought to myself oh i think i'd rather see this book adapted into film by david lynch than Paul Thomas Anderson. Because something about that image in particular, a man in drag using a borrowed woman's chainsaw that is enough to cut down trees in a city where there is clear-cutting happening, but also small enough to put it into into a purse and is styled with mother-of-pearl and rhinestones is just very... It's a very Lynchian image to me. It is that just matches his overall like weirdness and aesthetic. Um, and that then made me realize that this book is potentially the most Lynchian of any of any of his books as far as a, a point of comparison is concerned. And I know, Cody, you had thoughts on this. So please. I I 100 percent agree. It, I think if, if for anyone not familiar with with David Lynch's work, number one, turn this off and go watch like Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive or something. Um, actually, no, finish this episode. Then go watch Twin Peaks or Mulholland yeah. Drive. Um, I, I think it, so often people have the same reaction, uh, that they do with, with Pinchon. And that's why I think part of what I love about the two of them is that they, they share a lot of similarities in their, in the way they, they construct storytelling. Um, that was a terrible, in the way in which they tell stories. Um, I, I think they both work on a level of, of abstraction that requires um, a level of attention from the consumer that is not really prevalent in a lot of mainstream media. So it does take a certain amount of, of effort, I think, to really uh, appreciate and get into what they, what they do, but it's worth it. I think they both have such a, a quirky sense of humor and an understanding of American culture, uniquely American culture. Um, mm-hmm. I think Lynch often gets dismissed as being as being really dark and and uh, impenetrable, and I think that's due to people maybe stepping into his work with like Eraserhead or Lost Highway, which are much darker works. Um, but stuff like Twin Peaks and um, and Mulholland Drive and even Blue Velvet, which is a dark ass film, have some absolutely hilarious scenes in them. And I think especially watching, having watched Twin Peaks as much as I have, it's one of my favorite shows. Um, I, I definitely, Lynch could absolutely adapt something like this because he has mm-hmm. that, that really nuanced understanding of, of 
American culture, of consumerism within American culture, of the grotesque uh, sort of monstrosity that hides behind this this facade of you know this American ideal that we've we've constructed over the years um but we can't really fully hide from anyone really except ourselves i think as a culture mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I, lynch would absolutely crush something like this if he chose to do it um and again if you if you are not familiar with his work if you like vineland if you like the the humor that pinchon has go watch twin peaks it is so weird and funny and subversive and beautifully filmed and written all at the same time. It's he really is truly, I think, the most Pinchon-esque film and TV director and writer um that I can think of. Yeah, I would agree. I would also say that tonally there are some similarities between Blue Velvet and Vinyl. Certainly there's yeah, yeah. there's less humor in Blue Velvet. Um but they it's I there feel though like, yeah Frank Booth it, can, it can be funny as hell but he's yeah. fucking frightening and, and there is there is um david foster wallace wrote an essay on david lynch that's very good and when he was being interviewed by um charlie rose about th- that essay in, in as a portion of the interview he asked him what lynchian meant because he asked the same question to David Lynch when he was interviewing David Lynch and David Lynch predictably just sort of blinked at him because how are you going to respond to that question? Um, and I think David Foster Wallace summed it up perfectly in that he said, da- like, David Lynch is the perfect intersection between, like you said, Cody, violence and carnage and American consumerism. And his description of, like, what Lynchian might be is, like, like a man has murdered his wife because she has consistently purchased the wrong brand of peanut butter. Um, and she's been buying Skippy peanut butter instead of Jif. And there is a Jesus scene, Christ. there is a scene where, uh, the, the wife is sitting, is like laying on their, their kitchen floor dead, but she's wearing like a house dress and her fifties, like beehive bouffant is like undisturbed. And there is a conversation between the husband who's admitted to killing her for this reason. And the two police officers in which the two police officers, can't help but admit that she has been purchasing the wrong type of peanut butter and that that is somehow a a lacking quality or a deficient part of, of her doing her wifely duties quote unquote um and just that like that that kind of thing is exactly what i was reminded of with a lot of the absurd humor in these first two chapters and kind of the overall tone of the book to this point as a whole really um very very good stuff. Um, does anyone have anything that they wanted to add about chapter one before we get into the end of chapter one where he actually performs his his stunt? Anything from the first couple pages? I, just, I do think it's interesting that the uh, the dog is is fed like chocolate cereal. Um, you know, I mean, it does. If you really analyze it way too much, I mean, dogs aren't supposed to eat chocolate. I don't know if everyone knows that. Um, mm-hmm. And it could be a commentary on how processed the food is—that it's it's chocolate, but it doesn't harm the dog because it's so processed or something. It's a good point. Um, That's kind of how I took or it. Prairie hates so, it. So <laughs> yeah. there's so little <laughs> chocolate in that chocolate that it's okay for the dog to eat. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's an nothing detail to me. But, yeah, that's a yeah, really good call, Luke. Will, you were going to say something, too? Uh, I was just going to say that um, 
again, talking about his other books, uh, a lot of people point to Inherent Vice and say, it's like Pynchon wrote The Big Lebowski. No, Zoid is Zoid is <laughs> Je- is Jeffrey Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. The little one. Yeah. Absolutely. And you could even trace that back to knowing knowing what we know to an extent of, of Pinchon's love of of uh pulpy uh I guess you could hard boiled and noir um you know thirties and forties era stuff. The Big Lebowski is is uh the big sleep. Uh, no, farewell, my lovely. I think it's it's what the Big Lebowski is almost like note for note the same story. Um, so you could even backtrack that and like a lot of a lot of Zoid and yeah, a lot of of um, um, Jesus, why am I blanking on Doc? Sportello. Doc, thank you, Doc Sportello. Um, <laughs> a lot of they they share a lot of those similarities with those those hard boiled uh, detectives from the Chandler and and Dashiell Hammett and and Raymond Kane novels. Yeah, and and for anybody who hasn't read the rest of the book, they've just read these first two chapters. This is not to say that Zoe becomes a PI. It's just that um, that's kind of the whole point with Jeffrey Lebowski is he is not with the dude. He is not a PI. He's just a guy walking around. So until like the third act, he's not embraced that side of himself. Mm-hmm. And Doc Spartello is like a private investigator who takes his job seriously. Like there's a big difference there. I find the, I find those comparisons kind of lazy. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good call. And speaking of just a guy walking around after, after Zoid's first attempt to, to publicly declare himself insane by dressing in drag and menacing question mark, uh, a bar full of, of loggers and, and sort of uh, forest dwelling people. He then realizes he has to go jump through a play class window again. And as he arrives, he notices that there are federal agents there this time. In particular, a federal agent who has been trying to get him to turn uh, to being a state's witness multiple times or a, or a confidential informant multiple times. Um, and he he throws himself through the play class window and it is not real glass. So this this whole scene that kind of ends the chapter, what did we what did we think about um, that scene as a whole, the fact that it's not real glass, what that might be pointing to, what was our, our general thoughts on this portion of the, the first chapter? So here's where, here's where I will have my wild theory, um, that I want to try <laughs> to continue to do as often as possible because I enjoy them. We um, should like come up with a drop to play before you do I know, right? your wild ass theories. I'll have to develop a little sound bite I can pop in here. Um, to me in, in, as with all of my wild ass theories, this could just be me really pulling something out of my ass here. But uh, I, I, I immediately started thinking when when the glass was revealed to be uh, the the sugar glass, as it's known, uh, I think throughout the the Hollywood industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it I, I read that as a sort of uh, pointing out of of the absurdity of how polished and and sterilized a lot of uh, pop culture in the eighties became, specifically music. Where you had the, um, I'll call it a generous use of gated reverb and over compression and production and synthesizers, all these new technologies that come into recording that um, ended up becoming so dominant and just really making some of the blandest music possible. Um, How dare you which, make fun of the human league like that? I know, right? Well, here's the thing: like the thing is, um, not to defend human league too much. Um, <laughs> okay. Some of some of the '80s, like some of those really hyper polished acts, 
um, had some pretty good lyrics, but the music that they were put to was so just boring and bland. And mm. when you hear covers of them, that's when the, the lyricality can really shine and you can really appreciate what they were trying to do. But they were just so obsessed with, uh, with all that garbage, uh, you know, overproduction to the point where you had artists that went in like ZZ Top went in and absolutely redid all of their early recordings to have that gated snare sound on them. And it sucked. And you could not get any copy of that, not on vinyl, for decades. I think it was only in like the mid-2010s that they re-released them with the original recordings. So a lot of those analog recordings that had been in this, done in the 70s and 80s, when they got quote-unquote remastered in the 80s, had that polished uh, veneer to them that, that the 80s were so notorious for. And so you took out a lot of that, that danger that jumping through a, a real plate glass window would have and you effectively sterilize it and it's now it's this thing that it still can look like a spectacle but when you examine it and when you participate in it it doesn't have that same visceral uh kind of feeling and and so it lacks the same kind of punch that that it could have and i you know you'll get the punk movement and what how quickly that spiraled out and flamed out and then became overly polished pop music and, and pop rock of the eighties and the danger, the danger of rock and roll, you know, the, your bands like, you know, doing heroin and, and massive amounts of cocaine and whatnot and writing these songs about this, uh, this kind of dangerous lifestyle quickly faded away into your, your, uh, twisted sisters and your, uh, warrants and poisons and, and all that. Um, so I, you know, that little thing made my brain go in all those different places. So Cody's homework to everybody is to go listen to soft cell and <laughs> specifically to listen to the lyrics, uh, of of soft love? cell, uh, non-tainted love soft cell. Okay. Um, which, which is, look, it's a synth pop band. I will defend that is a darker band it's, than a lot of people think if you listen songs. to their lyrics. Again, songs like Mad World and Everybody Wants to Rule the World, like, Cheers for the Fears. Pretty good, but the music yeah. sucked. I disagree. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot more contentious than I think you think. <laughs> I will, yeah. okay, I will rephrase that as I have heard covers where the, the music is done better and, and really makes the vocal or the lyrics. I would assume you're more. talking about Gary Jules's cover of. Uh, Gary Jules's cover is good. Ted Leo and the Pharmacists did a cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the World um, that was absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. it's harder to find on YouTube than it should be, but it's there. Definitely. Uh, I, so I, I think, I don't think that's that crazy of a, of a theory for a lot of the reasons that you already said. I think that there is certainly, again, talking about like how the, the eighties and 84 with the second, you know, reelection of, uh, with, with not the second reelection, but the reelection of Ronald Reagan and, and all of the different cultural movements coming up and, you know, mass marketing and, and, and mass production of things coming up in that time does have a, a thematic underpinning to the fact that now suddenly the glass is fake. Like the glass that he jumps through is fake. You know, that is in and of itself kind of a death of a prior era when he was actually sort of putting himself in danger. And as he, as he talks about in, and I believe it's chapter two, like he genuinely wonders to himself, like, have I been just centimeters away from impaling myself on a piece of glass this entire time like when he really starts thinking about 
the change from real glass to fake glass, a lot of those mm-hmm. thoughts start to, to come up in his head. And I think that that just feeds into the same ideas that like Zoid is coming from an era that is gone. Like the hippies are gone. That whole thing is, is over the whole sea changed everything, but also most things are becoming fake. Like hyper processed food is pretty fake. His daughter brings out a giant, like bulk tub of guacamole that they must've bought at a store somewhere in chapter two that um, I don't think they're eating all at once, which means there's probably a lot of fake stuff in that as far as preservatives are concerned. And like, also like a lot of people would call the eighties, like a plastic decade where people started doing like, you know, cosmetic surgery and started, you know, having, having plastic like implants in various parts of their body and everything like that was when a lot of that started to come out. And then the same thing, like with sterilization of music. So I think there is potentially like a thematic underpinning to that. My, my reaction reading it through is more that it is a kind of setup to have something to hold over Zoid in the sense of like, you know, we know you didn't jump through a real glass window, which means that we could in theory take away your disability check. And and we know that, and we have engineered a circumstance where you've had to come here and do this this way, even though you wanted to do something differently. Like it, it, it it's, it's this concerted attempt by the government figures to get him to turn into a CI that now they finally have kind of a a thing to hold over his head is generally the thought process that I come away from this, this scene with, but I I don't think your theory is that insane. I think that there is. I'll try harder next time then. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say they're actually, they are the same coin. Those are two sides of the same coin. What you've described Katie is the plot value Mm -hmm. and Cody, you're talking about the more thematic thing. Yeah. Um, and fu- fundamentally, the thing that links those two ideas is the f- is the fact that um, that, like you said, Kate, the next chapter, Zoid starts to realize, shit, I've been putting my life in danger this whole time. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot there to be dug into about the way that exposing the potential of an artificial stake, S T A K E, not not lab meat can really um can really lead people to become someone who they don't want to be mm-hmm. that, that just by yeah. juxtaposing your own experience against something that is functionally identical but fundamentally entirely different you can remove the entire purpose from your mind and beyond that i think that there, there's something here kind of Similar to going back to Crying a Lot 49. Um, we're talking about replacing one substance with another that looks identical in order to create a media sensation. Mm. Crack. 1980s. It was not declassified until much later that the CIA had its hand in the distribution of cocaine into the United mm-hmm. States and into the formation of crack as a quote-unquote epidemic. but And then specifically putting that into, into predominantly black neighborhoods. Yep. Yeah, yep. And, but Pynchon knew a lot of, like, old Black Panthers. Like, he, you know, he, he, he was hip in all the ways. He <laughs> knew... He knew the rumors, and the rumors had been going around since the 70s, which was when it started that the CIA had started disseminating drugs. The, I think that all of those things are tied together in this scene. So I definitely don't think your, your theory is crazy at all, Cody. Luke, did you have any thoughts on this, on this scene? 
no, I do really like this scene. Um, it's entertaining. Um, I'm kind of struggling how to formulate my thoughts on this. I mean, I, I myself have have some pretty serious mental health struggles. Uh, I know Kate mentioned earlier in this episode that it does kind of seem like, at least here at the beginning, that Zoid is is faking faking everything in order to get the mental health disability check, uh, the mental dis- mental disability check. Um, there is some stuff in the next, in like chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, and even I think later in the book that does point to the fact that Zoid uh, is not necessarily living in reality and stuff. I do think that his his mental health struggles are perhaps deeper than than uh, this opening chapter would have you believe. Um, I also kind of wanted to point out that, you know, like not a lot of people, I don't, I mean, maybe not most people, in my opinion, would jump, would dress up in the opposite gender's clothing and jump through a plate glass window. And then uh, I forget what the exact verbiage is, but he like, you know, like menaces the cameras and menaces the cops. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, not a lot of people are going to be doing that for, for poverty, a poverty level of money. Um. I do think there's also an aspect of, I think I already brought this up, but the, an aspect of uh, the fact that mental health, mental illnesses, uh, you, you know, just like, you know, if somebody's walking around with a limp um, and it, it you see them walking around with a limp for a year or two or something, you, you can probably assume that they are at least able to get on disability and stuff. But, you know, if you see somebody walking around screaming at the sky and stuff, you're not going to immediately assume that they have a disability it's not something you first think you just first think of them as crazy um i so i do think it's interesting that zoid is forced to come up with a spectacle that seems to prove that he's crazy if that makes sense like it's mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. it's it's he can't you like like you know if he was going for a physical disability check it'd be a completely different thing where he'd have to like injure himself or something um but I do think it is kind of a commentary on the government and how ridiculous it can be to for somebody with mental health issues and somebody with like depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia to prove the fact that they have these that, that illness. You know, like I, I've had I think I've shared a little bit at the end of Mason and Dixon about um my own mental health struggles, but you know, I've had some pretty serious mental health struggles. I'm bipolar, which I I've shared with the co-hosts and, you know, I have encountered people that thought I was doing it, that I was acting in a certain way or behaving strangely uh, for attention, um, which is not the reason that Zoid is doing this, uh, obviously. But, you know, like people, people don't seem to really, people want, people seem to want some type of like actual, like, you know, like physical telltale sign that you have, you have the illness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm right, kind of yeah. guessing around when I'm trying to get at, I don't think I'm articulating it well, but um, I find all that interesting, you know, like in um, the fact that he has to do it yearly, the fact that one time is not enough. Um, the fact that it's like a, an event is also very interesting to me, but it's like a local, you know, like every year you would see it on the, on the local news. Um and everyone knows about it already too. Yeah. Like the way yeah. that the news crews talk about it. Yeah. The news crews are just sitting around talking about it. And then the the owner of the log jam doesn't seem at all surprised to see Zoid in that, you know, arrayed in, in women's clothing and carrying a chainsaw. Uh, I think he says something like, Oh, is that is it that time of year again? Uh, yeah. You know, it, it seems like Zoid is it's just kind of an accepted part of life in Vineland that Zoid has to do this every year. 
Um, yeah. And it seems to be kind of well understood by the others that this is something he has to do in, in order to make his living. Um, yeah. No, I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a telling or damnation of our, of our society that, it, not just in in 1984 when the when the book takes place, but even up to 2023 now, where you, I, I think it comes down to a, a lot of people, and I say a lot, and I mean a lot of people have a fundamental misunderstanding of, of mental health, and there's a number of factors that go into that that we don't really necessarily need to get into. Um, suffice to say that you know people generally don't understand how mental illness works. And, um, you know, as, as someone who's suffered with depression for most of his life, like I've had to deal with people who, um, think that just because someone's depressed that, you know, they're always that way. And there, there's no, you know, if you're, if I have shown any sort of happiness or, or been doing well, like it's proof that I don't really have anything wrong. And we see that a lot. I think specifically, I don't want to hamper on this too long, but specifically when you have comedians who have um, chosen to end their lives. Robin Williams is a, is a prime example of that where a lot of people couldn't wrap their heads around that because, oh, he's a comedian. How can someone who's funny all the time have depression? Like it doesn't, I, I think that highlights how fundamentally misunderstood mental illness is in this country. And mm-hmm. that Thomas Pinchon was writing about this in 1990. Um, and we haven't really come that far, uh, you know, in the almost 40 years since then now. Yep. Um, aside from having the ability to understand that it's more, it's not as generalized as we thought, that there's a lot of, um, the, I think the spectrum obviously has helped it with, with getting an understanding of there, but that misunderstanding of, of how mental illness really works and how it exhibits itself. Um, is still a problem for us. Yeah, I mean, it it just like it, within the past maybe five years became kind of normalized to have a therapist. Yeah, and like prior to that, if you heard that somebody had a therapist, your reaction was just like, "Oh, that person must be like severely disturbed." Yeah, which is kind of the the yeah the average person's reaction to that. And I think like I think yeah, Luke, you were you were really getting to some some pretty major stuff, not just with what this book talks about with a standpoint of, of, of mental illness and how that is sort of defined and looked at in this, in this country's history. But like it is a, a commodification of mental. They're trying to take a person who may genuinely have, you know, mental illness or, or some sort of warped view of the world. As you mentioned, he may not be reality and are trying to make money off of it. Like certainly the news stations are, and are, are certainly trying to sort of recoup an investment, so to speak of, of being willing to pay him these checks every single year by, by televising what he does, which is a very hyper capitalist 1980s viewpoint where it's just like, how can we make money out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, the fact that, yeah, to your point, Will, like the fact that he's willing to, to out of his own volition like dress up as a woman and go menace people with a chainsaw initially but then he's kind of forced into jumping out of the plate glass window and everything that comes in the in the the chapters after does point to the idea that there is probably something genuinely amiss there in his understanding of reality or the world around him or you know his his viewpoint on things but it is impossible to 
see that like yeah you can see someone with a limp walking down the street and you you know that something most likely happened to that person's leg but you can't see someone who has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or depression or anything like if there's nothing physically there so it, it it is almost as if zoid has to prove that there is something wrong with him by doing something physically in order to get any kind of any yeah. kind of recognition of that which which just once again feeds back into the feedback loop of your initial reaction to this is he's probably faking it for the money which which is exactly what a lot of people's reaction is to people who are on disability in general i'm going to say that none of what i'm about to say is to argue against any of the 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 great um valuable ideas y'all pulled out because i think you're absolutely supposed to sit down and start reading the book with that frame of mind and start to think, oh, so he, is he scamming the government? I guess that's kind of smart if you can... I don't know, he's eating year-old Fruit Loops. I don't know. Um, but in, it, I find it really interesting, Luke, that you say what you said, because I came away with the exact opposite. If we were posing Kate's initial statement as like a center point, and then yours as one side. I went way to the opposite side, and I'm not going to clarify that without saying that if you haven't read the book before, skip ahead like five seconds. <laughs> I think he's in. I think he's entirely like capable and just doing this because he's in a trap. I, I think that nothing that Zoid is doing is any of his own volition. And that's why he seems crazy, is that he is trying his best to look like he fits into this life that he has been forced into because he cares about his daughter so much. Mm -hmm. I've, 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 man, I wish we could talk more in depth about yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, he does, yeah. does mention that, that song from the 60s that's about faking uh, mental health issues to get a disability check. Um. I I, th I do think it's really interesting that you can kind of go either way on it. To be honest, mm -hmm. um, absolutely, yeah. I don't think that you misread it or that I misread. It. I think there's probably material in the book for both sides. That's the fun of postmodernism, everybody. Especially modernist concerns as through a postmodern yeah. lens. Yeah. <laughs> um. So moving on to to chapter two, um. Assuming that that everyone had 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 said everything they wanted to about the way that that ends, we have. I, I have one important thing to say. Oh, please go ahead. It's Will. haunting as hell to think about Pat Sajak giving genial vibes. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. That yeah. is an alien concept. He has been yeah. a weird wax figure my entire life. Yeah. Well, I mean, now he's probably actually a wax figure. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> so yeah, chapter two. Uh, Zoid Zoid goes home, um, and I I really love the interaction between Zoid and his daughter um, mm -hmm. when he returns home before his daughter's boyfriend enters the picture. Just the the dialogue between the two of them just rings so accurate to life of that kind of genial, slightly teasing father-daughter relationship that exists in a lot of people's households um and just yeah the, the way that they interact with one another and the way that they they kind of 
joke with one another and and play off of each other's sensibilities i i absolutely love about this this early scene um and of course we we get we get more more fun gross food just your your lunch maybe dinner is is Mm -hmm. just a big old bag of cheetos um which i love that it's rendered as cheetos in the the actual text of the book because that that is i believe how it was originally spelled i do think Um, that's correct yeah yeah uh and just watching like watching like crap tv and then eventually switching it over to to zoid's uh daring feat of fenestration um you had a a film concept idea cody that you left in the show notes yeah so not so much a i i I always love when he does these, um, and he does these a lot in Vineland, these um, so-and-so starring in the so-and-so movie. Um, and I, I, before I say this, I do want to just point out how uh, antique I feel now. Uh, because <laughs> when I was reading this chapter, the concept of having to wait for one show to finish before you can watch the thing you want to watch feels alien in 2023 it's very Um, real though or was i should say seriously like that was how you know and i i know i'm there's gonna be plenty of people who are you know as old as me or older uh who who remember that and that was just the way it is but we've i think we've become so used to the you know the ubiquity of you just put on whatever you want to put on at whatever time you want to put it on now um the fact that it used to be that way there was like five channels and it was you know you can't watch this until Pat Sajak is done with Wheel of Fortune. Um, you know, that's just how it was. That being said, uh, the the Pia, Pia Zadora and the Clara Bow story, um, anytime I see these, I have to dive into these these names if I don't already know them. This was really interesting because this was a case of a, a sort of quote-unquote bad actor playing a quote-unquote good actor. Pia Zadora uh, was in most famously this movie called Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which if you have not seen it, please go watch it. It's probably <laughs> one of the great, I hate Christmas movies with an undying passion. This is a good one. Um, it's so bad and it's universally considered like just one of the worst movies of all time. Um, but she was also in uh, Butterfly, which is an adaptation of James Kane's novel um, of the same name from 1982 which was also universally panned to the point where it was nominated for like 10 golden raspberry awards. Um, so she has this kind of distinction of being a, a, I, I hate to say bad because she's doing a job that I can't do. Um, she just was universally considered not a great actor playing Clara bow, uh, who was one of the more bankable silent film era actors. Um, she is the, the reason for the term, the it girl is based on her performance in the 1927 movie. It, which is about a uh, horrendous clown that terrifies this group of children um, in a, uh, nope, sorry. No, it's, it's a different movie. Um, no, but she really was the, the, the term, the it girl came from Clara Bow. Um, and she, was literally like one of the most bankable star, like her movies brought more people to the theater at the time, um, than was known, but she's kind of been forgotten since then in, in, in the mainstream because of people like Greta Garbo, um, and, uh, a lot of other actresses from just after her era who, because they were in talking pictures, Jesus, I sound old again, um, became more famous. Um, but that was that was an interesting little uh, tidbit that he tossed in there. 
Yeah, that was a good. I was not familiar with that particular history, so I'm glad that you caught it. Um, before before we get into the weirdness with Prairie's boyfriend, does anyone <laughs> have anything to add um, to the first part of this chapter? I know it's a pretty short chapter, so I wouldn't be surprised much. I do think it's really funny that Isaiah is just like apparently lurking in the background throughout this scene. Yes, <laughs> which gets it's, to. It's a- it's unclear how long they've been watching TV, you know? So, like, how long <laughs> he's just been kind of hanging out in the back? It's been, like, an hour um, or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a while. I also really like that Prairie's, like, kind of buttering him up. Um, Clearly. Yeah, I don't have any... Yeah, and I don't have any kids of my own, but that's definitely something that middle school, high school age kids do is is say nice things and do all this stuff and they kind of stab you in the back right after being nice uh or maybe not they don't view to stabbing you in the back but that's basically what it is um yeah i mean it, i i just love those two aspects of that scene neither yeah. of my kids is is that old yet my son just started middle school but uh so i don't know about the whole stabbing in, in the back thing that was certainly me as a, a middle schooler but uh damned if they don't hide and just show up at times <laughs> that's absolutely true yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 that was one of my favorite things to do as a kid. Yeah, just lurk in the shadows and wait. Lurk in the shadows and then make a business plan. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, so getting but, getting to wait, wait, wait. We all go ahead. Uh, magenta and acid green. That's all. Just needs to be said. I don't have anything to point to. Just saying it because it yeah. needs to be tokenized. Totally fair. I, I had a, I'm going to put myself out there. I had a windbreaker that was those colors as a kid. No, I mean, that, that I think I did, honestly. It's a good color scheme. I'm not going to lie. Bad. Yeah, it's no, it's, it's not bad. Scheme. It's not about that. It's that it is so, it's so ever present in his books that I haven't figured out what the hell it means. It has to mean something. It might just be his favorite colors. There's this whole TV. thing where if you zoom in on a, on a, on a, like an old school TV pixel at, like really crap with a really crappy lens it turns TVs. lime green yeah. and magenta. No, actually like early LCD TVs. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, and and he w- you know, he would have been around LCD pixels. They existed yeah. in computers. Yeah. I don't know. It's just my brain boggles every time I see those colors together in his books. <laughs> and it's twice in this chapter. So please continue, Kate. It's definitely there for a reason whether Pinchon just likes that color yeah. uh, or just if there's something deeper. If, he, if, if the readers have any guesses, please feel free to email us what they think. Um, moving into, into the actual scene with, with Prairie's boyfriend, yes, the, the concept that he's just been standing there for God <laughs> knows how long is hilarious, but it does get to a point that Will made a long time ago when we were talking about Vineland. Um, and and this might have just been in our, our last episode in Mason and Dixon. I can't remember exactly when you said it, Will, but that there is a repeated comedic motif in this book that Thomas Pinchon tries to backdoor character introduce a new person like out of a sitcom as many times as he possibly can in this book. And this is certainly one of the most like specific instances of it early on where just yeah. that concept of Prairie being like, Oh, he's right here. And yeah, then the door, the the laugh door track. Like, yeah, the door opens and then either a laugh track or <gasps> like, yeah. 
like immediately is supposed to follow that definitely um so i just wanted to 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 harken back to your comment there will because it is very accurate to how this book plays out and and is a huge part of the humor to it um and i'm also glad that that the uh the comment about rage rooms was was left in the show notes for this episode because i had the exact same thought when i was reading through this this chapter that his business pitch that he has for zoid which is very strange that you would go to <laughs> the 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 father of your newly minted girlfriend who kind of hates you because you represent the death of his previous subculture and the arrival of something that he doesn't understand and kind of hates to ask for a loan that for the building that this would happen in would have to be so large but also more importantly for the insurance oh yeah that yes this, that this business would require um is truly wild that someone would think that this is a good idea to do um, well it, it's like a teenager's idea of what a business is they think about like i would go there i would pay 20 bucks to go do that and yeah. not recognize the logistics of how it works yeah <laughs> um and and this this is very true like there are i was reminded of two things i was reminded of rage rooms which is this modern concept that's propped up in my personal experience like within the last like two years that i feel like these have really it goes back a little further than that i've seen some some stuff that predates that yeah sure yeah where, where people can just go rent out a space for an indeterminate period of time and they can just like break glass and smash things and just get like their aggression out or they're like they're upset feelings about something out. That was the first thing that it reminded me of, definitely. So, so you were correct in that Isaiah's idea hits very differently in 2023 than it would have in 1990. But I was also, I also just from the insurance aspect thought about axe throwing bars, where yeah. every sing every single time I walk past one of those because they're everywhere now for some reason. Like the concept of how much insurance you have to be paying as somebody who incurs to drink alcohol potentially to excess and just have access to blades Uh that they can throw in one particular direction Uh um and which is really a skill that you have to possess to do that right yeah Yeah. absolutely train to do that yeah i can actually tell you how they do that i know how they how they get the insurance for that really um they have you sign a form that says you have not had any alcohol in the past 24 hours like an indemnic yeah an indemnification what? form but yes you have it to is sign that before they don't let you they quote unquote don't let you in if you've had anything to drink oh, i don't know if they actually police it i swear to god they have to they jesus have christ to. they better but yeah no <laughs> that's how they're getting around that is everything on paper says that you haven't had anything to drink it's the same with tattoos that are tattoo parlors that are open yeah. till like two in the morning mm. in bar districts where they had yeah. to sign something that you're sober and like nobody ever is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do just fair. want to say rage rooms have existed since at least 2008. Wow. Crazy. I just looked it up. They started it in most likely in Japan. Interesting. One thing, one thing that uh, struck me about the Isaiah 2-4's business idea is that it did strike me as a very like pre Columbine idea. Um, yeah that was the other place my mind went yeah Mm. yeah it was like immediately i was like i try to kind of i had to remind myself that columbine took took place after this book was released because um 
I just I don't I don't know if that would have made it through the editing process seven years later, eight years later. Yeah. Even nowadays, I'm not sure if it would make it through the editing process. Um, but he could, there's no way he could have seen that. No, 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 definitely not. Um, it is that it, it kind of date the story, and it's also I mean it's the it's the it's the mid '80s, you know that. Yeah. Also, a time of of action movies. You know, that's when Jean Claude Van Damme and a lot of those people were kind of getting a lot bigger and stuff. You know, Rambo's around that time, I think. Slasher movies too. Yeah. Yeah. Robocop was becoming commodified in in a way. Yeah. Yeah. The the era of video violence. That was around the same time the NRA switched from being an actual gun safety advocacy group to being uh, what it is. What they are now. And I'm going to point back to the the hanging signifier I pointed to earlier. 1984. This is this is 2 minutes of hate but personalized. Yeah, that's that's fair. I also think it'd be int- I I don't know the answer to this, but I I also considered like if you go to a gun range now, which I've been to a few in my time alive on this planet, there are absolutely customized targets yep. that look like Arabic people yep. or that look mm-hmm. like particular like subsets of, of individuals. Like that is absolutely a thing that you can. That's just the ones that are probably now. out prominently displayed. I am <laughs> sure there are others that you could ask for. I'm sure. Yeah. The ones that I'm describing are, are visible behind the counter. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's one thing when it's literally a picture of Osama bin Laden. Yeah, right. But that's right. not what it is most of the time. No. Yeah. Um and so I I I don't know how you'd find an answer to this, but I would be very curious back to the eighties if that was even a thing yet, or even more importantly, like nineteen ninety so, when it was published, or if that was him kind of per, once not predicting, but like kind of seeing the way the things were headed. I I grew up uh hunting a lot as a kid. Um, and so I spent a lot of time as, as a kid, like I'm talking like five, six, seven, um, at gun ranges in the early nineties. Um, it wasn't that I knew of, it wasn't a thing at that time. Now, anyone older, uh, can correct me if I'm wrong there, but I don't think that kind of thing really started until post nine 11. Um, but I, I could be wrong. There may have been like a, you know, you could have maybe ordered personalized kind of thing but most of those targets at that time were just the silhouette targets where it's just the the black form of a body you know just shoulders in a circle for a head kind of thing um i don't recall there being an actual like visible person short of like taping a picture on someone because at the same time also dot matrix printers couldn't really pull off (laughs) that kind of detail so i don't know how accurate they could have made anything like that yeah. Yeah, I think I think that over the course of these two chapters what I've been struck by most is just how much of what he talks about just still has resonance mm-hmm. in 2023. Mm-hmm. Like what Will said at the beginning of just how all of this stuff is just kind of still around but isn't seen as crazy as it probably did in 1990 when it came out. Um, I, I do wonder if the phenomenon of individuals like printing out their own targets and then that turning into, you know, ranges having custom target prints comes from like the, the 80s and 90s military training montages. Like think of oh, Men in Black yeah. where it actually parodies the, yeah. those montages with that scene. 
Yeah, and there's the men in black where they're shooting at all these aliens and stuff, and then Will Smith is the only one that shoots at the the human the target. Yeah, yeah, the kid with the yeah. atomic physics book. Um, and another piece of more contempor- more contemporary contemporary to us media um, that this reminded me of was the episode of Atlanta where Darius yeah. tries to take a take a, a, a custom target of a dog <laughs> to a range. And so he sidles up next to all these big old redneck dudes wearing, you know, trucker caps and all shooting at like cutouts of like, I think there's one that's literally just like a, a child crying and others that are, you know, just racial stereotypes. And they all like threaten him to, they always, they force him out at the threat of violence because they don't want to see him shooting at a dog's picture. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's not one-to-one, but I do think that, that there's a lot of the same kind of vibe between these two scenes. I think there's a lot of the whole, okay, violence against people is fine as long as you, you pretend it's insincere. Yeah, I was reminded of that scene as well, for sure. Um, getting to Isaiah as a character... And specifically, Isaiah, as a, a contrast to Zoid, what, what are any thoughts you guys have uh, on that? I, I feel like their interplay with one another and kind of the two different things they represent is very interesting and is, is, is started to kind of get broken down in this, in this scene. Did we have any thoughts or anything it we is, wanted to talk about in that? It is interesting, uh, I think, because the, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting examination of the dynamic between someone like Zoid who would have been Isaiah's age in the sixties. And it's, you know, the, the, the thing, the interesting thing is there's so much, uh, similarity between the, the, uh, hippies and the counterculture movement of the sixties and the punk movement of the eighties. When you really boil it down, they were trying to kind of get at the same thing just in different ways where you had, you know, in the 60s, it was a lot of, you know, both, I, sh- I should back up and look at the bigger picture. Both of them were, you know, we need to dismantle the system because what is currently our, our ruling system is oppressive and it's, it's slowly, at the time, approaching a sort of fascism that we're going to get to a point of no return from. And capitalism in the 60s was kind of starting to head in the direction that it hit in the 80s when the punk movement came around so they're both trying to essentially dismantle the same machine um i think the 60s just went about it and and this is i don't want to get too much into it because this is where the book goes from here um but in the 60s it was a lot more um carefree and and maybe a little bit more i hate to say fun there was a lighter element to it a lot of what the when you look at like groups like the yippies with abby hoffman and those guys what they were doing was a lot of social satire and pranking and more geared towards let's bring down the man but let's do it in a funny kind of way at the same time um also a lot of drugs Whereas in the eighties you had a shift from that humor of it because now what they failed to do in the sixties is impacting the kids in the eighties. So they're pissed off as hell and rightfully so. And they're not being taken seriously 
by anyone, especially the people who really should be taking it seriously, like Zoid, who was there when this whole thing started. So it's really, you're compounding this frustration on top of them. And for a lot of them to not be taken seriously really just adds to that frustration and that anger that is a lot more prevalent in in the counterculture movement at that time. That's also where you had the straight edge movement with with people like Ian McKay and, and Minor Threat and a lot of those bands were completely eschewing any concept of, of using mind-altering substances because I think they saw what it did to the people in the 60s and how it completely derailed anything they were trying to get at and left them with the wreck that now these kids are trying to clean up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, like, I, I, I have a feeling that as this book goes on, Cody and I in particular, but maybe all four of us will end up talking about music a lot. Um, but oh, it, I was listening to Minutemen earlier today, yeah. so yeah, we'll talk about it a lot. <laughs> I was listening to Agent Orange on my walk back from work. Um, but I, I think, like... It, it is such a it is such a perfect like encapsulation of that kind of evolution from the hippies to what came afterwards, and that like the hippies all thought that they could somehow break down this system through their own experiential behaviors, and then also just as like an example, like if people see that there's a a different way to go about things, they'll just naturally join us, and then of course like that didn't work because there's no call to action and if you're just on lsd all the time like that's 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 unlikely to lead to anything profitable not that lsd can't be profitable but like not the way the hippies were using it especially in the late 70s um and so you have like the second generation that comes up after it that becomes very direct in its messaging not just about anger to your point cody of like everything that the hippies failed to do but also in the lyrics of the music that they were writing like direct calls to action and direct like descriptions of the times that people were living in and the the difficulties of that and the way that i I also like the fact that you brought up multiple genres of music and like multiple different movements in that because there is no good boundaries between any of it like iggy pop is I think the best example of this that I can think of in a singular artist and that like he was there for the proto-punk movement with the Stooges and that was sort of at the death of the hippie period. And then the same year that all of the punk music started coming out in 1977, he released The Idiot, which is a post-punk album about the failures of punk music not working, is essentially what a lot mm-hmm. of the like thematic content of that album was. So it was, it was such a like weird period in that the predominant way of doing things for so long was gone and it clearly failed. And now you just have all of these different artistic movements attempting to rebuild something out of it. And they're all criticizing each other, but also all kind of doing the same thing, but from a different lens. And it it is just so like, it was particularly interesting to me that the depiction of Isaiah and his look is that to me, it's like half metalhead, half punk. And that he yeah. isn't, he is not squarely in either subgenre of music or like subculture in his presentation. And certainly not in the bands that he is playing with. Like he is, he is orbiting between his own band, which seems to be a, 
of a you know punk thing but is certainly more associated with like what what sound like metal acts based upon their their names um so it's just this sort of weird nebulous depiction of the anger and turbulation of that generation that is coming out through its music and then subsequently as business idea in very stark contrast to everything that 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 Zoid stands for. So I certainly came away with a very similar thought process to you on that. Did did yeah. Luke or Will, did you guys have any additional thoughts with that? Yeah, I, I do think it's telling that Isaiah is obsessed with the Uzi. Mm. Um I I was just thinking, I mean it, it does, you know, like for punk rock and for metal music, you know, there's gonna be moshing. Uh, there's going to be a certain aspect of violence and danger to it that um, is just not present in the hippie movement, at least in in terms of you know, like you don't mosh at surf rock shows. Like in you know, Zoid was a was in a surf rock band, um, which does seem to kind of it it seems to it's Isaiah seems to be kind of making Zoid obsolete, and Zoid doesn't like it. Isaiah is, you know, like, like y'all were saying, like people like Isaiah have kind of taken over the counterculture, um, and replaced, you know, Zoid's peace and love with, um, you don't necessarily associate the words peace and love with punk rock music or metal music. Mm Um, I'm struggling to kind of formulate my thoughts on that completely, but I think y'all kind of get what I'm getting at where there's, there's an inherent difference between the two movements and the two, uh types of music and just kind of the whole thing um where like the young gun is kind of moving in and and zoid zoid feels threatened um yeah yeah literally a young gun in the case of the uzi that was a recently made weapon yeah yeah and i think you know to to go back on on that you know zoid's fear i think is it i think that's a good exemplification of of the difference in these two generations where you have Isaiah who is you know so full of this this anger and this this rage that's inside him that you know that's the your punk movement there which is a direct reaction to you know as Kate and I kind of talked about earlier with the the hippie movement really and truly they had good ideas they just got so bogged down in their own uh cloud of of on weed and LSD and um and so you have in the 80s now all these kids are like you know they're starting these bands and they're playing this angry fast music that these songs are two minutes three minutes long if that and someone like zoid who came from this era of let's take our time and we'll have these long drawn out uh performances you know and and isaiah's on the other side of that like no one wants dr fancy feats feel good fun time factory anymore we have to do something. We're trying to do something and you guys are just holding back. And that I, and I really, and truly that, that kind of, uh, cycles again, I think, and we're, we're getting the back end of that now, this, this time period where a lot of the, uh, that sentiment from the eighties is finally, it's taken a little bit longer, but I think the, the younger, um, I hate to say kids, but you know, the younger, generation the youths the youth sorry people like, will. Will. <laughs> people like will are 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 as pissed off now as as they were in in the 80s at that time you know mm-hmm. and it's you know gen x was as great as the music was for that time like it was the same kind of thing with the 60s like all these great 
you know, like we should do this and we should take down the man. We have zines and we're starting these underground movements and blah, blah, blah. But it just fizzled out again. And it's just, you know, now we're back to where we're, we need to do something. And the older generation, uh, not my generation, the, the one before me, uh, is, is still holding everyone back and not letting go. And that, I think that anger is, is relevant again, um, just as much as it was, you know, I, I think Isaiah is a good representation at that time that a lot of people that age now would be. Yes. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the cycling of it all because I, I, I don't have a thesis to unite all of these things that are floating through my head that have come, come to, come to a peak. Um, but let's start with the fact that um, in a crying of lot 49 Metzger tells Oedipo the instant that he, that she disagrees with him, but anything, Oh, you kids, you don't take yourself seriously these days. And that is practically the tone that, um, that, that Isaiah is using here. Mm-hmm. So, sure, okay, that makes sense. Why It, it could completely make sense why the, the straight-ditch folks would say, okay, no drugs, we want to play music that's fast enough that you can't be on heroin. <laughs> Just to make sure that that doesn't happen to us. And, um, sure, whatever, that's fine. There's um, there's the fact that Isaiah 2.4 is named after the section of the Bible that talks about mm-hmm. how after the Messiah comes, we will all be able to pound our swords into plowshares, mm-hmm. which indicates, obviously, I feel, that Isaiah's parents went from hippie freaks to just kind of Orange County Christians, right? And which is what happened to a lot of them. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And furthermore, um, Isaiah gave him the five-figure California orthodontia. So yeah, his parents aren't, they, they might have been peace-loving hippie freaks when they were young, but they certainly weren't when he was a teenager. Yeah. Well, and just the, the fact that he himself, from a, a name perspective, represents the opposite of what him and his generation are yeah. is, is just such amazing irony to to the whole just cultural yeah. context of it yeah yeah and in particular um there there is this thing in um in in media targeted at black americans from around this time and in the 90s there there's there is and there was and is to this day this kind of false dichotomy of um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And back in like the 80s and 90s, you would have these movies and TV shows where characters would literally say things like, come on, man, take yourself more seriously. More Martin, less Malcolm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I find it very, (laughs) very, very resonant. All of these things together in this one character of Isaiah 2-4. And I don't know what it is, but it's um, nauseating. Yeah, and I think just to get back to the the thing that Cody had mentioned about the 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 generation into into faster, harder music and all of that, and and kind of what we just mentioned as well with the we're going to play music so fast you can't be on heroin, is that <laughs> when you look at the origins of that, because punk is a a 
British-born genre of music. There was certainly syncretism with some of the stuff going on in like New York and America, but what we define kind of as punk started in, in the UK. It was born out of the British counterpart to Ronald Reagan, um, basically saying that like none of the young men in particular in the country were kind of worthy of a job, and they all got home and didn't have money, didn't have much to do, so they just started playing instruments, and none of them were particularly like well-trained Adept. or adept at learning how, how to play the instruments. It was just something they were learning to do because Mark Thatcher sent them home from work and never gave them another chance. Yeah. And out of that was born this music genre that is, that is very specifically a reaction to that and has a lot of a lot of you know syncretism to the economic stuff going on in america with ronald reagan and everything that we've been talking about as it relates to the 80s as a decade and what that decade means from a a cultural institution from an economic institution from you know everything like it is it was born directly out of the actions of what was a reaction to the hippies in the 60s and 70s in a governmental perspective. And so it's just, it it, it ties together, like, Isaiah 2-4, the music he plays, what he represents, his name, all of that, ties together so many different things that that is going on from a standpoint of, of this set dressing of this book and of the the issues politically and socially and psychologically in the 80s in America time. And, and how he is sort of the perfect end result of all of that. If you add all those things together, you end up with this kid. And, and he's, com- he's completely against it all. He's not, he's not controlled opposition. No. Uh, I'll, I'll say, just to end, uh, on my end at least, the, uh, the whole crux of this, this discussion that we've been having, this whole thing is summed up in one sentence and it's the, the biting insult that Prairie, uh, delivers to Zoid when she says, you've turned into exactly the same kind of father that used to hassle you back when you were a teen hippie freak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which hits so, that's got to hit Zoid so much harder than, you know, a fuck you or anything like that. Like she, really got to the crux of everything yeah. that was going on right there. Which is done in an economy of words because yep. this the same insult is given to Doc Sportello by Bigfoot Bjornsson when he talks about how Shasta left him and he's yeah. still there there carrying the torch. And even in, in the case of Inherent Vice, that is taking place in a in a time period where the hippie movie was almost dead like it is the last on the dying breath (laughs) the last days of that um and yeah to have that delivered from your daughter to you when you still are under the impression that maybe like you're still holding things together man like yeah that's that's gotta be just yeah like you said devastating (laughs) so any any funny parts that we haven't mentioned over the course of this this discussion the one that i will bring up that nobody has mentioned is the fact that uh zoid makes a joke about isaiah's halloween costume as being jason specifically from the uh the friday the 13th made in 1980 which if you are not familiar with why that is funny the 
default sort of idea of Jason in most people's heads is the giant guy with the hockey mask that eventually will be played by Kane Hodder in the later Nightmare, not not Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday, Friday the 13th movies. Yeah. In the 1980 different. version, Very different. Jason is a... Uh, I don't even really know how to describe what Jason is. He he he's not... an, a he's an adult with the brain of a child, more or less, that has like an enlarged skull and like a like a misshapen eye, and looks almost like a X Files alien. If it was trying to disguise itself as a human it, being, it looks like they took the. Um the human tumor growth thing for total recall and put it on a body. Yeah. That's a better description than I was able to give. Um, yeah. So the fact that he specified, uh, in the text that it was Jason from the 1980 <laughs> Friday the yeah. 13th made me howl with laughter. Cause you would have to be a really dedicated to create either a mask or buy one or whatever he did to achieve that costume. But also just like, why are you dressing? Why is that your choice? It's so absurd. Yeah, it made me yeah. made me laugh really hard. Um, mine is is kind of slipped into a paragraph on page eleven. Um, it's the idea that Zoid purchased a mantra uh, from Van Meter, <laughs> which I I read that paragraph a couple times just to really enjoy the the how. That might be the most 80s thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. um, so the, here's the paragraph. Production staff murmured into walkie-talkies. Technicians could be seen through the fateful window, waving light meters and checking sounds outside. As Zoid, breathing steady, silently repeated a mantra that Van Meter, claiming it had cost him $100, had toward the end of his yoga phase last year hustled Zoid into buying for a 20 that Zoid hadn't really enjoyed discretionary use of. <laughs> Just that, that idea, that whole concept just makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> I think my most funny part is is um, at the end of the mall scene, uh, Prairie's friend, whose name I'm blanking on, tells Zoid, you'll see. And then we cut to Zoid, you know, walking into this very nice upscale bar in drag with a chainsaw. Mm -hmm. Um just Zoid's confusion about the changes in the bar and how he's like, you know, I would never cut this place up. I mean, you've done so much work on it is, is just, is, is pretty funny to me. Um, it's super absurd and it does kind of show how human Zoid is and how nice he is and how he, he, he's not looking to hurt anyone, uh, basically ever. Um, but I just love that mental image of this guy talking to this teenage girl, about, like he's like buying a dress and she knows what he's up to. Yeah, and then he shows up, and she's already warned him, and it's you know it's it's just completely different from what he's expecting, uh, and he still tries to go through with it anyway, and then kind of realizes that it's pointless. Well, and I I love the way that I I read that sort of as like a, a joke about her trying to warn him about all the gay people. Oh, yeah, that is true, and I mean Zoid, yeah. this isn't this obviously isn't funny at all, but Zoid is sexually assaulted in the bar. Um, yeah. by the well, the, the bar way it's patron. phrased is kind of funny. But yeah, yeah, the actual scene is pretty unpleasant. Is it is any other funny parts that anyone wants to bring up? Yeah, I'll I'll point to the just the fact that Pinchon has clearly decided to make fun of the fact that everyone's like, why does he put all these unnecessary details in his books <laughs> by putting the years of every movie after yeah. every title? 
the years, but also the sheer number of brands and famous people yeah, yeah. That yeah. mentioned in 19 pages. It's a lot. Yeah. And, <laughs> and along those starting. Lines, Yeah. Along those lines, the actual scene that I thought was pretty hilarious. What's this Mr. Wheeler? What happened to you lunch meat sucker? This line having climaxed to the last get-together when, from a temperate discussion of musical differences, feelings had swiftly escalated into the rejection on quite a broad scale of, one of, uh, of most of one another's values. Well then, sir, replied the NBA-sized violence enthusiast who might or might not be fucking his daughter, I must have meant lunch meat only in terms of our joint strange fate as mortal sandwich, equally exposed to the jaws of destiny. And from that perspective, what's it matter, really, that you don't care for the musical statements of septic tank or fascist toe jam, jive-assing so obvious that Zoid had no choice but to thaw? <laughs> that's just, that's some masterclass yeah. bullshit. Yeah. By which I mean, it's completely nonsensical, but I'm for it. Um, I, I special shout out to the the description of the cucumber neon sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Where uh, it's it's a pretty quick quote, so I'll just read it. Where it says, "News crew stragglers were picking up a few last location shots of the cuke and its famous rotating sign, which Ralph Jr. was happy to light up early. A huge green neon, a huge green neon cucumber with blinking warts, cocked at an angle that approached, within a degree or two, a certain vulgarity." <laughs> <laughs> That was going to be my most pinching part of the of the chapter is that last phrase, the, the cucumber looking vulgar. That's such a good line. It's so good, yeah. Um, are we ready to move into quotes? Sure. Uh, my quote actually comes from like the same paragraph, which which ends chapter one, um, where starting just after that, it said, "It says, did Zoid have to show up next day at the bowling alley? Technically, no." But in the Federale's eyes, there'd been a glint that Zoid could still see behind the one-way autoglass. Even as the nightly fog rolled up over the great burn on toward 101 and Hector was driven away into it, Zoid could feel another hustle on the way. Hector had been trying over and over for years to develop him as a resource, and so far, technically, Zoid had hung on to his virginity. But the little fucker would not quit. He kept coming back, each time with a new and more demented plan. And Zoid knew that one day, just to have some peace, he'd say forget it and go over. Question was, would it be this time or one of the next few times? Should he wait for another spin? It was like being on Wheel of Fortune. Only here there were no genial vibes from any Pat Sajak to find comfort in. No tanned and beautiful Vanna White at the vision to cheer on the wheel, to wish him well to flip over one-by-one one letters of a message he knew he didn't want to read anyway. I, I just... Everything about that quote, I think, symbolizes why I love this book. Like, it, it's, it simultaneously makes reference to, again, like, pop culture of the period and how so much of it has just become referential to, to, to different commodities, but also just the, the description of how, as we kind of talked about, countercultural movements and figures just slowly getting broken up by the FBI and and other government, you know, bureaus. We have the same thing and that this person has been trying to get Zoid, who's been a hippie for the longest time, to to flip over and work for him. And that finally, you know, we also have the, the Thomas Pinchon capital T they 
idea mm-hmm. of of, the, of those outer forces that are going to control things, whether you want to or not, and how he doesn't want to go to the bowling alley, but he knows he's going to, and how this might be the final sort of straw before he he, as the book puts it, loses his virginity. Um, yeah, I just think it's so. It's an amazing way to end it in the chapter. It's an amazing piece of writing from its description and, and its comparison to Wheel of Fortune. And just, yeah, I love it. And and also, like like Will said, like the whole genial Pat Sajak thing, that that underscores the fact that there is something nightmarish in what he is. Um, yeah, I love that quote. That's a good one. Yeah, you stole it. Thanks. Ah, I was going to ask. <laughs> Congratulations. It's been oh, a while. It's been so long. It has been a while. Well done. Um, mine is on page fifteen. So I and I do want to point out. I checked on. So I have two copies of I. I have the UK paperback, which took some doing to find a good copy of for a reasonable price, but I found it, and I'm happy I have it because that's my favorite cover of this book. Um, it's for anyone curious. It's the one with um everything on the cover. <laughs> Um, I'll use it for the YouTube videos that we put up for these episodes, but it's the, it's the, decolletage the Minerva one? print. Sorry? The decolletage one? Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, the pagination seemed to be the same, uh, at least on the Penguin and the Minerva copy that I have. Um, so I my think... pagination is off with the, the first edition little oh, brown hardcover. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, well, mine's on page 15 is right after the in, the introduction to chapter two. Um, and it starts looking good, dad on the tube. Zoid came blasting out the window along with the dubbed in sounds now of real glass breaking police cruisers and fire equipment contributed cheery chrome elements. Zoid watched himself hit the hard pan roll, come up and charge the camera screaming and baring his teeth footage of the pro forma booking and release weren't included, but in tubal form, he was pleased to see that the dress day glow orange near ultraviolet purple, some acid green and a little magenta and a retro Hawaiian parrots and hula girls print came across as a real attention-getter. Over on one of the San Francisco channels, the videotape was being repeated in slow motion. The million crystal trajectories, smooth as fountain drops, soyed in midair with time to rotate into a number of positions he didn't remember being in, many of which, freeze-framed, could have won photo awards someplace. Next came highlights of his previous attempts. At each step into the past, the color and other production values getting worse. And after that, a panel including a physics professor, a psychiatrist, and a track and field coach, live and remote from the Olympics down in L.A., discussing the evolution over the years of Zoid's technique, pointing out the useful distinction between the def- defenestrative personality, which prefers jumping out of windows, and the transfenestrative, which tends to jump through, each reflecting an entirely different psychic subtext, at about which point Zoid and Prairie began to drop away. I chose that because I think for anyone who feels like the writing dipped in quality in this book, I think that's a prime example of how he has not lost his. The imagery is amazing. Um, there's, it's it's funny as hell. Like the fact they're pulling in people from across the world to analyze this man in a dress <laughs> with a chainsaw <laughs> jumping through a window, like on a on an almost molecular level that we're really looking into this. Like there is so much going on in this paragraph that it's it's just. I I I can't understand how people can dis the fact uh, like Harold Bloom saying it. There's not a redemptive sentence. In- this is a great book. I love it. Harold Bloom is the reason why um, 
Sutri is overlooked in favor of Blood Meridian. So I'll sign a petition if you want. Harold <laughs> Harold Broom. Bad takes. That guy had a lot of bad takes. I you know I know people hold him on a pedestal, but I uh, I don't. Know. I never have. My friend Tom. That's that's how he addresses Pynchon, by the way. Gross. Yeah. I yeah. guarantee you, Tom Pynchon does not like Harold Bloom. But that could, that is I I, could... that's what he said in classes. It's not a joke. <laughs> no, I, I believe guy. that. Ugh. Luke. So my favorite quote is the opening paragraph. I'll just read the end of it because that's kind of my favorite. Is he groaned out of bed somewhere down the hill? Hammers and saws were busy, and country music was playing out of somebody's truck radio. <clears throat> Zoid was out of smokes. Uh, the Zoid is out of smokes part hit me pretty hard. I mean, I uh, I used to be a cigarette smoker until the past week, and then I switched to vaping. Um, but just I don't. I love the how kind of um natural all of that feels and how you know he's he's waking up in the late af- in the afternoon there's all these birds chirping he's been dreaming um you know there's is kind of a feeling of like golden sunlight draping the the entire landscape it's kind of pastoral in some ways i just really love the opening paragraph it's a great one yeah definitely you have a a backup quote will um, I'm reading off of an ebook, so I can't point to any page here. The Cucumber Lounge property extended back from the disreputable neon roadhouse itself into a few acres of virgin redwood grove. Dwarfed and overshadowed by the towering dim red trees were two dozen motel cabins, with wood stoves, porches, barbecues, waterbeds, and cable TV. During the brief North Coast summers, they were for tourists and travelers, but but through the rainy remainder of the year, occupants tended to be local and paid by the week. The wood stoves were good for boiling, frying, even some baking, and some of the cabins had butane burners as well, so that along with wood smoke and the austere fragrance of the trees, there was an all-day neighborhood smell of cooking in the air. Not only is that just a very very pleasant sonically to me, but also uh, it's it's a it's a beautiful scene that is still troubling with all of these very dark themes that the rest of these first two chapters tackle. I think I think it's a really nice little encapsulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to most pinch on part of the chapter, I, I will I will go last just so that I potentially don't steal Will's two segments in a row. <laughs> That's ridiculous. My- Mine that I've already mentioned is uh, the cucumber looking like a penis, basically. Yeah, uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very pinchinous detail. Um, something that I don't think a lot of writers would would necessarily include or think of. Uh, it's it's that it's in that kind of nether region between absurd and funny. That's it's I rather like that detail. Yeah, I would say also if the, if they included it, they wouldn't write it as well. No, they would make, no, it, it would, would be way too blunt and and <laughs> ham-fisted. So yeah, yeah, be like they looked at the sign and from a certain angle they almost thought that it looked like a penis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it reminded him for some reason of something phallic, <laughs> and he had to use the bathroom. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, mine is uh, mine is just the general concept of of what Zoid does for quote unquote employment. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that's, 
it's a lot of different things at the same time. And I think that exemplifies a lot of what Pinchon does. Yeah. Also, shout out to the note you left in there. The general concept of Zoid's <laughs> means of employment. When I first read that in the show notes, I I I had a hard time stifling my laughter. <laughs> Just the way you phrased that was funny. Thank you. Will. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna force me to go, I um, I I will choose the choice for um. The the choice for Hector to immediately go, mmm, mmm, que rico, que sabroso. <laughs> that shit's fucking hilarious. Yeah. I agree. Because, like, really it's just sugar, man. What are you talking about? I get the, it, it, it is, that's one of the more human things that Hector does in this book is make that joke. It's yeah. Pretty it's great. True. Yeah, true. Um, my most pinch on part of the chapter would be specifically the description of the level of production going on oh, around yeah. the yeah. actual process of, of Zoid jumping like us. Like the fact that they have like lighting. Yeah, you know? it's a real backlight. Like, yeah, like it, it basically turns into a film set, um, which just, yeah, the, the absurdity and just the detail there um, just stood out as being particularly uh pinchonian to me like it, it isn't enough that this is that the general concept of zoid's means of employment it is but also the fact that when he goes down there there is a back lot set up around what he's about to do without yeah. him, without him calling anybody without him like organizing anything yeah they're just there <laughs> you know i'm i'm thinking about it now and maybe that's his kind of uh acknowledgement of people's assessment of his work is you know all that all that production to just have this moment this one brief thing you know i think that was a criticism that was probably leveled against gravity's rainbow that it was to say what it was saying so maybe that's uh you know a little aside at that you might be onto something there cody maybe that's my wild ass theory for the episode <laughs> you're gonna steal one of my wild ass theories <laughs> I need to get my red string and my bulletin board cleared off. There you go. Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before anyone steals anything else, uh, given Will's threat, um, let's move on to, uh, to listener yeah, yeah. comments and questions. Uh, Cody, do you want to read the email that we got since sure. your episode? Yeah. So um, for anyone uh, who cares, <laughs> we filmed, we filmed, we recorded our bonus episodes in one go. And uh, and chop them up and release them piecemeal when we did. Um, so this quote, uh, this this uh, comment from one of our our listeners actually came after the first of those bonus episodes in which I talked about Near Automata, uh, a game that I hold near and dear to my heart. Um, and it says, "Hi, I've been subscribed to your podcast for a long time, but haven't actually listened to anything beyond the introduction. As I'm waiting for the right time, a big Mason and Dixon reread." Just wanted to say kudos on the Nier Automata episode. I always thought there was a strong Pinchonian feel to that game, to the point that I found it a shame that no one else was making the comparison. Can't wait to dive into the rest of your podcast next time I delve into the work of my favorite writer. Kind regards, James. James, thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate that. I'm glad that there's uh, other Pinchon and Nier Automata fans out there. And um, I hope that when you uh, get started on the, the Mason and Dixon reread, or if you're joining us for the Vineland read, um, I hope that we can add uh, something to your experience there. Yeah. 
I, I, I agree completely. And also, to all of the people who requested Vineland, and it was more than one person. It was, yeah. It was a, it was a good chunk of the communication we had on this podcast like, when we first started. I would like you all to email us. Please, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So many of you requested this book specifically. I'm not saying that we chose the book because you guys were requesting it. We were kind of already going to do it when those requests started to come in. No one tells us what to do. Like, like, please, everyone, uh, write in. Let's talk about the book. Like, as we talked about at the top of the show, this is such an under-discussed, underappreciated, strangely kind of maligned Mm -hmm. uh, book by Thomas Pinchon. If if this can become a discussion between more than just the four of us on on the merits of this work and and how it is it is underappreciated, I think that's really what we would all like to see out of it. Um, certainly on, on a surface level outside of the the bigger discussions themselves as we get into them but that would be my ask that would be my homework yeah. Cody's yeah. homework is to listen to Soft Cell um, <laughs> and my homework I would also I would also like to put out there if you don't if you genuinely do not like this book write us an email and we'll tell you why you're wrong oh yeah we'll have a bad take corner yeah <clears throat> absolutely I, I, genuinely I would like to hear if anybody does not like the book uh, and has read it and 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 wants to engage in discussion. We will respectfully um, engage in that. I, I would genuinely like to have a dissenting voice that that you know provides that that kind of contrasting opinion. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. And if anyone wants to be like reductive and an asshole about it, so that we could make fun of you, that would be appreciated too. <laughs> we'll welcome that as well. Yeah. All right. So I think that just about does it for the first two chapters of Vineland. Uh, I hope everyone who's listened to this, whether they've read the book or not, um, whether they like the book or not, has enjoyed the discussion. I think that the, the, the depth to which we were able to go into out of only pages of material here um, does, a lot of, does a lot of work to illustrate why this is, this is a book that we wanted to do early on. And why it is that uh, that we're we've been excited to talk about it. So um, next week we'll be back with a discussion on chapters three and four of Vineland. And until then, uh, we will we will keep on keeping on gathering sources and resources for for our discussions as we move through through the third book in our wonderful Thomas Pinchon discussion podcast. I am your co-host Kate, and I'm Cody, and I'm Luke. And I'm Will. We'll see you in the next episode.